Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. I'm a fan of classic movies. Hello and welcome to Overlapping Dialogue, a podcast of double features dedicated to programming the finest, most eclectic, and downright bizarre film pairings and cataloging the discussions that ensue. We're your gruesome twosome, Kyle and Levi Huffman. I'm Kyle. And I'm Levi. And here we are in the mid-80s of this podcast. You feeling old yet, Levi? Oh, feeling I think you're talking about we were, oh, the movies we were talking about are in the mid-80s. No. I was going to say one of them <laughs> is, but uh, yeah. Yeah. We're getting on up getting there. Away, getting a ways. Uh, it's been a while. It's been a while. Uh, yeah, what is this? 80, what did you say it was? 86? This is 85. 85 or 6? Uh, I can't drive. I mean, when we when that happened, what was that episode? We're getting on up there. Where, what was fifty five? Yeah, I wonder. Uh, let's go back in the old memory vault. It was the American Friend? Oh, okay. Well, that was a big episode because we had Vim. And we did. Yeah. We had Vim, and then he came back briefly. Uh, until for, the end of the world. Uh, until wasn't the end it? of the world. Yeah. yeah, and he was busy. So you yeah. know, I mean, he did show a movie at Cannes this year. I so guess he's been busy. Yeah, but so what number is this? This is 87. Hmm. This is 87. Huh. Can believe, well. Can you believe that? Yeah. We're getting on up there. It, it is. We've uh, been doing it a while, I mean. Yeah. So, uh, this is like, I feel like since we've changed the format of the pod, this has felt like, well, duh, why haven't we done this episode yet? And I don't even know how long we've even formally talked about this being an episode, possibly. Not that long. It, not that long, but it feels like such a, yeah, duh, we should be doing this. Velvet Goldmine from 1998, and I'm Not There, from 2007, from the great Todd Haynes. Now, I feel like, you know, I feel like I can say this for Levi and I both, if we created like a Mount Rushmore of people we're fans of, both individually and collectively, a kind of, that would we would put on a Mount Rushmore for this podcast spiritually, Todd Haynes would be one of those names, I think, that we would both agree on yep. Robert Altman too. We we haven't talked about Bobby in the past or much recently. We have in the past. We should do some of his movies at some point soon. Yeah, pick something out of there. We I don't know because he's got so much to pick from. I mean, dang. We finally went through by the way and watched all his seventies movies because you know the last one we did was uh, the perfect a uh, perfect couple was our last Netflix right. DVD. Mm-hmm. And if you just really go back and look, at, I know we've talked about this before. And we don't want to talk about Robert Altman the whole time. We'll leave that for another time. But uh, if you just look at that list of movies, it's bang, 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 like over and over, just this, that, and that. Even the like, ones that have fallen through the cracks yeah. and are not like considered the iconic movies of the seventies like, are still so images. good. Like yeah, Thieves Like Us. I really like Thieves Like mm-hmm. Us. That's really good. Or even A Wedding. Yeah, is that like really good? Yeah. Like and then even something like Quintet, which is categorically bad. 
actually. So bizarre, though. Is so fascinating, yeah. though. It's like, wow, you really did this. Uh, okay. And I know I'm a pretty big fan of Buffalo Bill in the Indians or like Singles that. History yeah. Lesson. I like that. Maybe a little more than you do, but I that do is like great. It, yeah. And I, you like Three Women a little more than me. I yeah, don't want to rewatch really that. that. Yeah. But yeah, that, and those aren't even mm-hmm. all the stuff. You have Mash, which we've grown on a little Mrs. bit Miller, over the years. Yeah. Nashville, Brewster McLeod, Brewster McLeod. One of the weirdest movies yeah. out of all those. Yeah, just all kinds of stuff. I mean, yeah. Anyway, but anyways, point speaking is, of, speaking of Robert Altman, <laughs> yeah. Todd Haynes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure he's an Altman fan. I'd actually be interested to know what where he stands on. I feel like he would be because, that. like Altman, very different context. Yeah, he he really experiments and does all kinds of different. I mean, kinds of movies. I mean, he obviously has uh, affinity for like a certain style and aesthetics, but he's very much a chameleon in a different way than Todd Altman Haynes. Was. Talking about yeah, yes, Todd Haynes. He yeah. is, and I want to talk about that in a bit because. I can say now, before we get into the Blue Plate special, that it just came to me. Todd Haynes, I think, is another version of Wes Anderson, and let me say why, in the sense that not even stylistically or anything like that, but that i really been thinking about his first like three to four movies are like, wow, you had that to say. And not that there's been a big drop off, but since then it's been kind of like after and spoiler even after rewatching I'm Not There, which is still really good to great. But you see, oh yeah, it kind of does feel like he, you know, there's been a bit of a loss of a spark, and I mean that kind of happens with anybody. Well, we've agreed that Wes Anderson's kind of came back from that a little bit. Yes, and I think that, and I'm not saying Todd Haynes is like done. I mean he Todd Haynes just you are on no 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 no, I'm just. (laughs) I'm just saying yeah. it, it that uh, with Velvet Underground that yeah, was like that. oh wow okay really which that was that. at least a good excuse to make that movie because that was a documentary and it was different like Dark Waters or which was fine pretty good or like and then May December which we really quite were not taken with and even before that Wonderstruck it just seems like since Car- well I should say Carol I love Carol was really great so I shouldn't. I don't know. You know what I mean, though. It feels like, especially rewatching Velvet Goldmine, which we're going to talk about extensively here in a little bit. That just felt like wow. And then thinking about Safe, Poison, even after that, Far from Heaven, like those first few movies were just so strong that inevitably it's hard to live up to that. I think eventually. Mm-hmm. And and it, well, and even I'm not there as part of that too. I think, but. He Most did, obviously, it. some short films like the Karen Carpenter story, Superstar. Yeah. Uh, I, I the Suicide. Go watch that movie if you want to I be feel like I, In my head, I thought there were more movies between Poison and Velvet Goldmine. There's really only Safe in the middle yeah, of Yeah, no, that's, that's it. Well, he, he made, he made oh, you're going to laugh when I say this. I think he was making, like, Dottie Got Spanked around that time and mm-hmm. some of those other movies. Like, like, he was doing some other stuff, I think, briefly. And then, well, what always shocks me is how there isn't anything between I'm Not There and Carol. That's because he made difference. that Mildred Pierce TV yeah. show, which we haven't seen, we need to do. And then that Sondheim documentary he made, yeah. too. So, like, there was some time in there where he didn't really do anything. Exactly. Well, I won't say that, but it didn't make movies. Right. Um, but, anyway. That's just to say that I think this this double feature is a good one, not only in the sense of what the movies are about, but also in thinking about what 
is are his strengths and what can sometimes be his very his weaknesses, which are anybody else's strengths probably. Right. But anyway. Levi and I are still in the midst of celebrating the Dallas Cowboys choking in round one of the 2024 yeah. playoffs. You know, it's one of those things we're obviously Cowboy haters. We have people that we love in our lives who are Cowboy fans, so we're not trying to... I actually know a random amount. Them. And thankfully, most of those people are relatively uh, sensible ones, mm-hmm. I'd say. Of those few I'm thinking of, those those are not like the pri- that that characteristic is not their primary engine of life, right. like a lot of Cowboys fans is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah, that that is good. But yeah, the the playoffs have just started. It's wild card weekend. I was unable to see the first half of the Cleveland Browns and uh, Houston uh, Texans. Say Houston Rockets. Houston Texans, yeah. Houston Texans game. Uh, Houston clobbered them. I was expecting. Now, and I'll say, I picked Houston to win that game. I picked... Uh, you thought the Dolphins might beat the I Chiefs. I picked the Dolphins yeah. to beat the Chiefs. Both those things didn't happen. I did pick Dallas to beat Green Bay. Thank God that didn't happen, so I lost on that. And then, and by the way, this is all just perfunctory, but I was just kind of picking these. And then uh, the Detroit and Rams game, I actually did pick Detroit, and they won. So that's Close game, one yeah. and three, I Yeah, am. as of the but, time we're recording this, this is Monday on MLK Day. Yeah. We have uh, the Bills and Steelers play at like four o'clock later today. Yeah, and then the Eagles and Buccaneers yeah, at night. So. so it's been actually a lot of games. Uh, well, that was the whole point and, of adding a right. seventh seed is the basically they get one more game. Right. Yeah. That extra, yeah, because it used yeah. to just be there were two wild cards per yeah. per division. And or the second seed got a, a um, bye, but yes, not anymore. But anyway, uh, so yeah, it's. Uh, I think been some good games. Uh, well, I should say it seemed like that game last night was really good. I didn't watch it. The Detroit and close, Rams. Yeah. The other ones have been actually more on the more line. or less blowouts. Yeah. Uh, but again, it's Cowboy haters. But well, well, that's what I was gonna say. So everybody did pick Dallas for this first game, and we all expected, okay, this is the year where they can at least go the distance yeah. a little bit. Now, they have been in the playoffs since this, but my prevailing memory of the Cowboys in the playoffs, interestingly, happens to also have been against the Green Bay Packers in what is known as the Dez Dropped It game, where they lost that. Yep. So, they obviously consistently, and everybody knows this, and and. Everybody thought oh, this, this was the this year. The year right? Though, right? I well, even I thought. Well, even I thought based on their performance because I watched some of their games. They play. I watched them play the Eagles. I watched them play Detroit. They almost lost that game. They did I get watched, spanked by the 49ers, but that yes, was early in the season. Saw that, but so I watched them quite a bit throughout the year, and it did seem. Oh, I was kind of worried about that team a little bit. Yeah. And then you have yesterday. Now, it should be said, of course, that Green Bay got possession first, immediately scored a touchdown. They had the momentum from the beginning, as our dad said, and it was our dad's birthday yesterday, so happy birthday, yeah, Dad. He's a, because He's the biggest Cowboy hater I know, yeah. so he was very, very happy. his 70th birthday, he got that. Yeah. Uh, and we get that from him, and that's a, a characteristic I cherish. And he the Raiders, as Levi does, yeah. I do like, quite like the Raiders myself. But I think he likes the Cowboys either just below loving the Raiders, or hates the Cowboys just below loving the Raiders, maybe sometimes above that even. Yeah. <laughs> well, and here, okay, so... 
Yes, Dallas and also the fact that the Raiders admittedly always go 500 or very middling. There's no expectation with either him or me to see them there necessarily. You know, there's always that little hope, and they snuck in back in 2015 was the last time they made it. They lost to Houston. That was when Derek Carr got injured, right? And that's why game. I hate Indianapolis Colts. For a lot of reasons, that was one. Then also the fact that uh, they screwed Peyton Manning over after his injury, and the fact that they hired Jeff Saturday instead of that one coach they should have. And there was the whole controversy because it was an African American coach that they wouldn't hire. I'm hoping that they do that with the Raiders coach that we have now. Yeah, Antonio Pierce, yeah. Antonio Pierce, uh, but considering he's also black, I don't know. Maybe they'll be racist again. Who knows? But the point is, is that I hate Indianapolis Colts anyway. But there's always that you don't expect the Raiders to get there. So then the next best thing is, all right, let's go in the opposite direction. Who do we hate most? Mm -hmm. Now, we also need to mention that the Steelers are in the playoffs. They will probably be beaten today. If not, they'll be beaten next week by... I don't know. Maybe, well, they play the Bills today uh, next right. week. They play uh, maybe Baltimore, or it would depend. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, they'll get beat. I mean, whoever. Uh, and the Eagles are playing tonight, and I picked them. I think they actually might win this game. Everybody's counting them out on that. I think Tampa is overrated. Well, they're so, the NFC South team, whichever right. NFC South team won the division this year and got in was probably going to get bounced. And I know that Jalen Hurts isn't playing, and they've lost a lot. I think they lost five out of the last six games of the season. They had started as undefeated. They were the only undefeated team for most of the season, the Eagles. I think Jalen Hurts is playing today. Oh, he is? He's injured, though. Right, but so, yes, so it's it's questionable of his ability. I still feel, though, that based on that, even still, they will have a better time of playing this game, and I think they're going to win it. But anyway... Point is, in honor of, by the way, in honor of uh, Todd Haynes, there's people also ask, when did Jalen Hurts come out? He's not gay, actually. I thought that's that, – well, wait a minute. He's gay. Yeah. He came out. No. Uh, he selected 53rd overall in the second round. So oh. So. <laughs> I that was funny. Anyway, uh, so that's all to say. You, then you look for who do you want screwed over. And, of yeah, course, the right. first thing to look for is Dallas. And Dallas goes back and forth. Usually they make it. They'll win. They sometimes. Well, it's been them. The Eagles have won the division for the last few years, uh, but they'll always sneak in on a wild card. They technically won the division this year, right? And the Eagles, yeah, didn't. yeah. The so, Eagles had like kind of an early lead, and then they've choked right. away a lot. Of yeah. Games oh, because they, of course. Like, I'm sorry, because they were second seed. Second seed versus seventh seed in in Jerry World in we, Arlington. I think this is only the second or third so, season we've had uh, the seventh seed added. And this is the first time the seventh seed's ever won, also. Yes. Well, also, I think the first time the second seed has lost, or one of. One also, of the, uh, the Green Bay Packers, with three wins, officially have more wins in AT&T Stadium than the Dallas Cowboys in the playoffs. Really? Three to wow. two. Yeah, because they've... Well, and that's the thing, is that they have been in the playoffs more than any other two teams in NFL history, which also means they've played each other an above-average amount. Yeah. So... I mean, historically, just, in the '60s and '70s, all the way through the even '80s and '90s, they were playing a lot of games against them, each other and also years. San Francisco playing yeah. uh, Dallas because that was what we assumed was that no matter what happened, San Francisco is going to get Dallas down the road, you know. But anyway, point is, it was a. Uh, it, 
I guess what I can say, like always with the Dallas Cowboys, as uh, they are called by Stephen A. Smith and Accident Wedding to happen, mm-hmm. uh, the reality show, America's true reality show. One thing I will say, though, the way I would describe it is like what Billy Crudup said in Jackie. It was a spectacle from beginning <laughs> to end. I mean, talk about other disasters in Dallas. Yes, and so I I don't want to be the type of person in my life that is remembered for their hatred towards something, but it truly was an amazing experience mm-hmm. to watch Dallas get shellacked like that and just mm-hmm. get whipped senseless. I mean, it, it was just, it was bad. I mean, there's I a, mean, you know, it's interesting, yeah. like, since we've been alive and we've paid attention to football, and again, I, I was born in 92, so, but I didn't, I was obviously wasn't paying attention to when they were winning their last Super Bowls in the 90s. But really, ever since I paid attention to football, really from the mid-2000s onward, Dallas has disappointed in the yeah. playoffs. Uh, and Mike McCarthy, other than winning the one Super Bowl in Green Bay, right. has mostly also been it's a, been a postseason disappointment. Yeah. yeah. So uh, it should also be said that Jordan Love looked terrific. And yeah. Green Bay, they have had such luck with drafting quarterbacks. Yes. And, I, you know, obviously we're at the beginning of Jordan Love's career, so we don't know all the twists and turns it's going to make. Right. But obviously with Brett Favre, the stability he had in Green Bay, and then Aaron Rodgers. And there was a question over, will Rodgers live up to that and was able to? And then now this already coming out of that looks like another success. Him and uh, C.J. Stroud both for Houston. Now, Jordan Love is not a rookie, but this was his first season really starting. Similar to the path that happened with Favre and with Rodgers. But C.J. Stroud being a rookie, and if you actually looked at their numbers – I saw, I think it was CBS Sports or CBS NFL or whatever, tweeted like Spider-Man meme, and it was like literally almost almost identical. He actually stats had in the games. it above Favre uh, slightly. I think he was just below Rodgers. That's not to discount. He didn't Favre turn the anything, ball over. Like, no, I mean, both and of Favre, them actually right, had Favre picks did. Or, well, Favre, and we've talked about this, but Favre liked to throw interceptions quite a bit too. Because it wasn't his last play. As a Packer, was an interception, right? In I believe the NFC Championship yeah. game, two thousand eight, against right. the Giants, who would go on right. to beat the Patriots. And so of that two thousand seven yeah. season, third yeah. coldest game in NFL history, at least at the time. I know now we've already had some colder games, right? But anyway, that's all. Just say that, yeah, because I don't want to bury the lead here. Also, the fact that, and we're we are, and I don't, I'm not just saying this because I feel like I'm going to say this tomorrow when I go back to school and talk to the kids about this and go about, oh yeah, we are pretty relative. Uh, Green Bay fans. They always my more top or less five have been. more favorite teams. Yeah, in the league, and yeah. and uh, and that's partly because our family, people in our family, are big Green but Bay fans. But when I this to but, me as a fan of the NFL and the history yeah. of the league, like when I think of the old school NFL teams, like the Packers or like them, the Redskins, like one of those like teams and, uh, that are just way Pittsburgh, up there, or even yeah. Raiders of a certain era. Right. Like I mean, uh, and like, the Cowboys are another one of those. So, and I've always yeah. the whole Green Bay franchise Chicago I've always Bears found also. charming, mostly yeah. because like they're a publicly owned team. They're in a city that like that's their biggest sports team by far. I mean, Wisconsin has other things going on as a state, but like that's as far Green as that Bay, city, like, that's literally nothing against Green that, Bay as a city, but they're known for that. does yeah. not have a corporate name. It's Lambeau Field from right. Curly Lambeau. I mean, it's just, it's just the NFL purist uh, well, even, in my heart right. loves everything about the And even in the, the sense franchise. of the name is about, it's something I didn't understand for a long time. 
the name literally refers to packing meat and cheese. Like mm-hmm. it feels like a blue collar football team. Yeah. It feels like a football team. Like they're going to go out and play football in the snow. Kind of team. You know what was interesting last and, night? Know. I've heard other allusions to this in the past that um, Michael Strahan said, who of course he played for the Giants. Right. Um, he uh, said after the game, and by the way, we saw the halftime show where Jimmy Johnson was like yelling at the TV screen, like getting all into like. Yeah. Hey, I mean, it wasn't even like a fake. I'm gonna give a little halftime. He was he threw his yeah. whole back into it. I'm surprised it didn't uh, go out of place. Yeah. But Strahan said something after the game where he's like, you know, to play in Dallas, you're almost you're more of an actor than you are a football player. Like you're performing. For the cameras and the hype and the media machine, more so than you are just being a football player. And he says that for the players, that has to have a psychological effect yeah. after a point, you know. Um, yeah, and, and to that point, it, on the other side of that, Green Bay went there to play a football game, and they played a football game, and consistently. And what was so impressive about that, too, is, of course, Dallas came back and they shaved it off to about a, what, 16-point? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, they got out. Uh, Green Bay got out to a big early yeah. league, and especially in the playoffs, the half, that's you know? like a hard yeah. thing to maintain, right? You know, so even despite that, yeah, you can't league. do that forever. But there was that question as we went into the third quarter, and we were feeling pretty good at that at the half on that. But of course, there was always okay. Let's just hang on. Let's not get too excited. But I don't know. I was even getting that inkling. After that first touchdown, I was like, well, that's good. Let's see how Dallas does. Really bad first few drives. Terrible. Had a had a pick six, and then he had another uh, interception. interception that was basically almost a pick six, and then it turned into a touchdown. But they kept scoring, and even when they were coming back, it's like they always had an answer. They always scored again. It was well, Dallas, like a constant, uh, like, you Dallas know. Dallas early on when they were racking up a lot of wins, their defense was being touted as among the best in the league. Yeah. And uh, that was different because the last so many years they've had a more high-powered offense and the defense has been lacking. So this was right. one of those years, oh, the defense will carry them, and that didn't happen. No, and game. there was a whole thing about Michael Parsons who's really good on their defense, even though that <laughs> – Skip Bales called him a fraud today, well, yeah, and went off whatever. And off the deep end. He's just a psychopath, yeah. anyway. Um, but uh, that he would then. That, one funny thing, I said this while we were watching the game. It was pretty early on when it when it wasn't assured, you know, yet. Yeah. And they said something like, "Yeah, that Michael Parsons complained he hasn't had any holding calls against him over so many years of playing over the whole season." And I kind of looked at you and Dad, and I said. Yeah, because uh, you you want to play a football where you're looking for penalties against yourself. That's how you want to be as a football player. And that kind of sums up that whole game to me, is they were looking for outs every chance they could get, or all oh, this, that, you know. I know that and, there's been a yeah. little bit of controversy in the Detroit-LA uh, Rams game about the, some officiating calls. Really? None of that conversation whatsoever with the Dallas right. um now, game. yeah, admittedly, in that case, they were complaining. There wasn't much that could be done as to that. In fact, if anything, there were far more penalties against Green Bay than there were against Dallas, yeah, as far as I remember. Were, yeah. It was it was, and just above average. It was quite a bit more. I mean, they had that horse collar that was stupid. That wasn't even really a horse collar that they got an extra down on. Uh, there was that. Well, that, it was dumb, but that Green Bay player. Had uh, Dak tackle on oh, that face running, mask, and, he, and that yeah. was on him. He right, have yeah. done it, but they so, stopped him, and yeah. then that gave. Him but even that. with all that, yeah, which could have turned. I mean, we've seen that 
pe- people still talk about the Minnesota Miracle game with uh, New Orleans and Minnesota about how there were some calls against New Orleans or that were or that weren't. Well, that was on even Minnesota. worse the year before. Right. I think when it was um, it was oh, who was it? It was the, maybe the Saints and the Rams. I don't remember who it was. There were a lot of bad. There was this really bad call against the Saints. I remember. Yeah. So like, there have been versions of that, and people still talk about. Yeah. But even and so those games turned on that in certain ways. Mm -hmm. This game didn't have anything like that. Even in those instances, they could not perform. Yeah. They just could not do it. And there's a lot of people getting blamed. Mike McCarthy's getting blamed. Dan Quinn's getting blamed. Both of whom should. Both train train wrecks in their own way. Mike McCarthy actually, I think, more of than I do Dan Quinn. Dan Quinn's kind of a low-key train wreck. Um, the big thing but, about him is he was the defense coordinator right. for those like Seattle Seahawks teams in the mm-hmm. early 2010s, and so he still coasts on some right. of that. Well, like, and then he cachet, screwed up. Like, His biggest thing was the Atlanta Falcons uh, yeah. Super Bowl 51 against New England, how they mm-hmm. lost that game. Um, but even and, and as a person who coaches myself, I can look at this and say, I think that coaching is important, but that's one of the things in the media that gets touted a lot as the main problem with a team is the coach did this or the coach didn't do this or they did blah blah blah. And I'm not saying that that isn't important, but it is. And one thing our dad said, which I agree with, is he doesn't hype the players up enough. He doesn't really have a personality that like breeds confidence, like Jimmy Johnson did, for example. Or you know, and they've had a spate of really bad experiences with that. Jason Garrett was another version of that. Uh, but it's the players who can't do it, you know, in a certain sense. Now I will say they called some plays. We talked about this on both sides of the ball as far as with both teams, that they were throwing these really deep passes on first, you know, first and ten, and then running the ball and, like, barely getting downs. Mm-hmm. So that was something, I think, that fared f- worse for them than it did for Green Bay. On Get but, Up, they had a stat for Green Bay that on first down, yeah. first down, Green Bay averaged on offense – nine point so many yards per play and that's like you're not gonna lose if you do that yeah I mean, well and aaron jones many. was a monster yeah, yesterday yeah. awesome awesome ver- you know like him and uh pacheco won the uh i'm sorry i always like that name and pacheco won the weekend running back wise yeah. i mean just crazy numbers i was watching that game uh Saturday night, the first half, and that, that was like, wow. They literally – and we can talk about that a little bit. I know you didn't see any of that one, I don't think. But Not really. That was the cold, one of the coldest games ever, and I was thinking Miami would win that more that, or less. Again, that the, game, if that had happened earlier in the year yeah. where Miami's a little more healthy and it was on a neutralish slash warmer field, I think Miami yeah. would have won. But, that, listen, I mean – it's easy to doubt. I feel like the Kansas City Chiefs now are in this position where they're like subtly moving along, and everybody. Yeah. And there's the whole Taylor Swift element to the whole thing, we know. But like, they could like you blink and they're in the cha- the Super Bowl again. I yeah, mean, they could. I, I mean, yeah, even that- I, as somebody who who is down on them a lot, that's the case. But I will say, as a, a brief analysis of that game, part of the issue there was literally that people could not tackle each other; they were so stiff. That was the also cold. that cold weather game. And know, so happens. they had these, and not that, you know, they weren't throwing balls and Kelsey was catching them and stuff, but they were running the ball a little more because their receivers are not as good as they used to be. Tyreek Hill now playing for Miami. They've lost him for two years, and that really has shown this year more than it did last year. 
but they just could not stop them the from the run. They just couldn't tackle them, couldn't get them down. Same thing with uh, uh, but some blown coverage on receive or catches, different things. Uh, and so that was the main problem with that performance. I think that depending on who they play this next week it'll be a lot more of a fair contest obviously a fair contest to where i think they'll falter based on that performance that i saw Mm -hmm. um but i don't know but anyway that's all just to say that a lot going back to this a lot gets blamed on coaches but it's these players i'm telling you dak prescott is one of the most inaccurate he's a lot like tony romo it was the same thing it's like sometimes they're on and sometimes they're off it seems like when they're on, it's in like moments where they don't necessarily need to be, and then when the when it calls for it, they can't do it. And I'd thought with Dak that he was coming along where he might actually break out of that mold because he's been there for what about five, six seasons now. It's been a while, something like uh, that, six, seven. And yeah. back when he, Elliot was there, and they really had, and he really fell off big yeah. time after that first year. That I thought, oh, he's finally coming around. He had had some injuries, but this just goes to show again, he just couldn't, just couldn't do it. And and a lot of people are gonna blame that on Ceedee Lamb too, but that's all to say that it was a team effort of a loss. I think there wasn't one particular. Oh yeah, it was a total thing. loss. Yeah. It was just really bad. But a total win and, for us. You know, yeah. Oh yeah. Awesome. It's the kind of stuff you you pray for. We honestly. might have said this for Super Bowl predictions. I mean, uh, the easy one everybody's jumping to are the Ravens and the 49ers. I think that's probably it. It's, but and then after that, give me your Royal Rumble winner predictions. I'll come to that in a second. <laughs> I don't want to overhype this and and, that's more important. and overblow it, but Green Bay. They're hot. They got nothing to lose. I, They're the right, seed. Yeah. They're frisky. Uh, I mean. I'm just saying, and, and that's my favorite team Green Bay in and, the playoffs. Uh, 49ers of. Uh, play this season i don't remember if they did no right. i don't think so yeah now not. they may end up yeah they're gonna have to play san francisco so that will be tough that will be a game that'll be really interesting to see because also san francisco is really good but brought mm, and brock purdy's really good but he's still new and he still has these little screw-ups here and there he's had some injuries different things that's really why they were out of the playoffs last season it's because of the injury he had so yeah, that's but, guaranteed to be the divisional round game, I guess now because because yes, uh, they're the lowest and they're the yeah. highest. But yeah, that game will prove to be something to watch for sure because I, that's one I was more sure about. Oh, 49ers will win, whatever. But they've been sitting, you know, on the bench for a week, you know, and that's so not always good for no. teams. Yeah, and Especially you could say the same for Baltimore too. I think they're far more the dominant team. Though. Dallas has been great at home all season, and so for the. Uh, Packers to go in and you know beat them in their yeah. home place, and now they're going to go have to go to Levi Stadium. As far uh, as but, as far as the AFC, I think Baltimore's more or less got it all sewn up. I feel pretty confident about watch that. Out for these Chiefs, though, I'm just yeah, saying, like, I, you're right. But because um, I think I might be wrong about this, it might be the Chiefs if the no the Chiefs won. So. I think if the Bills win, they got to go. Or no, if the Bills win, the Chiefs go to uh, Buffalo. Mm, that'd be I nice. Think. Um, Give them another cold game. Now, now again, would, now I, that would wear them down. I'm quite rooting. A bit. For, I like the Bills. I like the yes. Bills. Mm-hmm. But I feel like 
the Chiefs, like, getting this win under the belt, we don't know what's going to happen in the Pittsburgh game. I've got a feeling that I think Buffalo still has some banged-up players. They have played each other a lot in, in the playoffs. Pittsburgh as a, as really so far, turned on Mahomes here at the end. has the advantage over uh, Allen. All I'm saying is watch out for the Chiefs because yep. – uh, and I'm definitely not a person who thinks, oh, the NFL's rigged, blah, 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 you know. Could you imagine all the Super Bowl headlines that are going to be there if the Chiefs get back anyways and then, and then with the they, Taylor Swift? they like, kick about, out whoever's doing the halftime show and it's Taylor Swift. Yeah. Like, I know that won't happen, but like. There would be a, like a cameo appearance oh, yeah. by her guaranteed oh, yeah, if yeah, that happens, definitely. like, you know. And, yeah, but so I do feel, though, in the end that Baltimore's more assured I am really excited and fascinated by this NFC race, though, because we haven't even talked about Detroit, and they are, like, really good. Like, They've been the, a little up and down, that, but, but yeah. I do feel like for that franchise and for that city and for those fans, which God bless them, they did exercise a serious demon. They had not won a playoff game in uh, 22 years. I think since the 90s, yeah. I know, 32 uh-huh. years. Yeah. It was 91. Yeah. So... That was a major moment for so, them. And I think yeah. now the biggest... The team with the biggest drought of a playoff win, I think, now is the Dolphins, I think, because yeah. it was the Lions. But, yeah, because even, you've even had some of these newer teams like Houston and Jacksonville win over the past so many years. Houston, since the, their existence, has now had more playoff wins than the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> <laughs> but, so, that triple threat of Detroit, Green Bay, and San Francisco – is like really dangerous right there. Yeah. Of like, I'm that's going to be something to watch. And either of those two teams are going to probably, I think, pretty sure be in the end of it. I don't know, you know, about whoever wins this Eagles Tampa game. Surely they're done for. Any of those teams they play, that's well, they play Detroit. That's going to be tough. Yeah. But anyway, we'll see how it goes. Royal Rumble. But, who's winning? Uh, <laughs> You know, it's between two Giovanni Vinci. Yeah. No, uh, you know what's funny is I was having a conversation with somebody I won't name a student. Of, well, they're actually not my student, but I know them really well, and I coached them in soccer here the other day. We were talking about their they they're kind of sort of into wrestling, and they brought him up, and we're like, I kind of like him, and we're talking about it. But anyway, I so to me from what from the outside looking in, you'll have more of an actual idea about this. It really is a Cody Rhodes or CM Punk yeah. thing. I think it'll be CM Punk mm-hmm. because I think Cody Rhodes can. Did he uh, beat Shinsuke? By the way, yeah. Okay, I think that Cody that whole Rhodes, rivalry, which was mostly good, was kind of a. A like fill in the blank until we get. Yeah, to father Rome. was in. Brain. Yeah, I mean yeah. it did get us the, um, the American yeah. Nightmare Before Christmas, right. you know, moment. But, but so that being done, I think it's going to be easier to generate a new storyline for him to go after uh, Roman Reigns anyway. Yeah, but what about the Rock? Right. That throws this whole wrinkle in the whole thing That's because true. everybody's expecting there's going to be a Rock uh, Roman WrestleMania match now. I've seen some people theorize, mm-hmm. what if? Randy Orton actually upsets Roman Reigns at the Royal Rumble, and then uh, Cody faces his old-time friend and slash rival Randy Orton because they have this whole history yeah. together, and that actually is at WrestleMania, and then you have a non-title match between The Rock and Roman Reigns is a theory that some people have had. Yeah. Then you set up CM Punk versus Seth and Rollins And then that would be that. a good question of can Roman Reigns actually deliver and perform not having the championship and actually wrestling. That's the the angle people have talked about. Yeah, but I think 
shot in the dark, it's going to be CM Punk wins it because I think that's going to fit more into the Seth Rollins like yeah. that. I think that Cody Rhodes is still big enough to where he yeah. can he can basically generate anything he wants to generate. The biggest face but, right now in the company. Yeah. By and far. so with CM Punk coming back into it, I think they need that extra push and excuse to make him win that to give him that juice to say I can still do this and then go to fight for the. So you don't think Archer's got a shot? No. I don't think Otis would either. I'm just going to say I feel beautiful. He might feel beautiful, but he is Tazawa? not. Tazawa. Tazawa. Now that is nasty. Who said that? As uh, Xavier Woods says when he does his little dances. I do like Tazawa. I got to say, yeah, that's something. I'm yeah. so excited, honestly, that this is going to be the first Royal Rumble I actually get to watch live. This coming since weekend? I know the next. All right, okay. But by the time this episode comes the out, there will possibly be. the Zone of Interest weekend. Maybe we yeah. don't know. Yeah, we're, well, we're hoping to have updates <laughs> yeah. on that. But anyway, uh, we'll come back next week. A lot on of sports football. slash sports entertainment talk yes. here at the beginning, but. You know what you're... Got a very we'll brief... You here. know what time it is. <laughs> Put your hands up. Moment. It's time for the Blue Plate Special. Hi, Audrey. No, Ma. Have a cup of coffee, please. Sure. I'll have what she's had. Your limp biscuit with rotted honey is rainier. This should be a very brief one today. You know, uh, we more or less already kind of had a blue plate. We've special. talked about this uh, in the past. Like being a cinephile in January is always a very interesting moment because it's a combination of those award favorites. Which, by the way, like uh, Tilda still hasn't got back to us about her award for. Uh, you know, the yeah. Harry Dean from last time, but it's okay. We'll give you some more time, Tilda. Um, but or anyone else, uh, but. yeah. But specifically her, you know. Uh, if she wants to be on, I wonder the pod, if Vim got mad because we didn't give him one for his can. He did film. have that new movie come out. That yeah, I heard was well, good. we didn't get to see it, so oh, well. he didn't send it to like. He didn't send can us you a screener no, after all like, the time. After we've... everything we've done, he wouldn't send us that. I, you know, after how we've contributed to this comeback season that he's yeah, been in. I mean, all know. I'm saying is. Is that he wasn't making movies, and then he's on this podcast, and then he comes out with a movie. That's all I'm saying. Well, next time he's on, we're gonna have to grill him hard. Oh yeah. Anyways, January is always a tough month because we're like you're. It's a combination of trying to see those things that slip through the cracks in November, December, and then the new stuff that gets put out. Which stuff that's just the January. Which sometimes like gets too bad of a rap. I mean, it's like it's genre movies that like don't don't have a broad enough appeal that they're going to get play in the summer or any other time of the year. So they just kind of dump them. Which is funny because this movie could have easily been a summer movie. Yeah, it could have been. Uh, Not Swim. But you know what's funny is what I will say is... is what it is. Is that we, and I uh, agreeably, we are, you know, I said, down on the January movies. But guess what? We went to see this movie and not Ferrari, which was a choice that we had, mm-hmm. by the way. I want to make that clear. There was a choice between Night Swim and Ferrari, and you Wait. know 
<laughs> without a shadow of a doubt, we're going night swim. That's that's our that's what we're gonna do. We're not gonna do what you want us to do. Which is like, objectively crazy because it's like, oh, Michael Mann's got a new movie, but it's like it's a new Michael Mann movie in twenty twenty four, like night swim. There's twenty twenty three, like you know, I don't know. But yeah, I know that two objects cannot occupy the same space. And I love whatever. Adam Driver, yeah. but whatever. Night swim, uh, obviously from this year, supernatural horror movie. Uh, was this a uh, this was a Blumhouse production. Mm-hmm. I couldn't quite remember if it was. Um, it's Universal, I think, put it out. Right? Yes. Yeah. Its plot follows a suburban family who discovers that their backyard swimming pool is haunted. I love it. Well, it's like, sort of. It's yeah. not even kind of frou-frouing any more than that. It's just like, yeah, haunted swimming pool. Um, I want to say, first of all, before we get into this, that we saw this movie based on the trailer, primarily. Yeah, it was like uh, Marco Polo. And yeah. And like, you know. Polo. Yeah. Uh, you know, the thing is, like, uh, trailers are a funny thing. Trailers are a very fickle thing. I don't believe in trailers most of the time. You don't They're believe not, they exist. No, I, I didn't say that. <laughs> but, like, I don't believe in their capacity to inspire as much interest as, as people yeah. think they do. Because, to me, like, yeah, I'm going to watch a trailer for a movie and go, okay, that just to see what it looks like more or less. Mm-hmm. But like I'm already probably going to see the movie either way. There have been that handful of movies though where I have watched the trailer and gone, "Oh, I like to see that like Sicario's one, Green Room's another." All right, moving on from 2015-2016. Yeah. Um this was one where I saw the trailer and was like, "Huh. Interesting." Like yeah. I mean it was very much it felt a lot like a combination of a grindhouse trailer from the seventies or eighties, but also a short film in itself. Yes, like yeah, it yeah. was very. It was basically the scene from the movie. Like it didn't have all these trailer tropes. It was just like this is the scene mm-hmm. from the movie, and so that was so impressive to me. I was like, oh, and then night swim. It's almost like a punchline. Yeah, it's right. like night swim. Like, and you've got to see it. So going in saying all that, I had no idea why it, uh, Russell was in this. Yep. So that was interesting. Um, yeah, it's basically about this baseball player who hurt. He has like basically MS, I think, or some version of that. I don't remember what it is. Does it say? Uh, he's been forced to retire due to illness. That's basically it MS, yeah. or like some you know uh, deterioration of muscle or tissue yeah. or uh, bone. And that he basically can't walk. And so they're like, oh, you need to do water therapy. Meanwhile, they're buying a new house. Well, yeah. guess what? Or they're trying to move somewhere. Well, guess what? He can, uh, oh, look, you can do water therapy here. He does it once and he's already like, oh, I'm like a cured. new man. And, I like... Which, and it's because there's something in the water. Mm-hmm. They he's not going to maybe make a comeback in baseball. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it basically, do we just want to spoil what's going yeah, on go here? Ahead, yeah. Okay. So basically, from what I could tell, there was some like old Native American spirit. That's basically what I thought it was going to be in the beginning. I haven't anyway. seen that trope like, in a while, I feel like. No. In a new and it movie. didn't say that explicitly, but it was basically like there's this, like, you know, old ancient, like, pre Columbian, you know, like, uh, spirit in the water that, like, cures certain people, but it has to have a blood sacrifice, basically, and has to kill somebody else to provide that. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of like uh, Pennywise and It, where it only happens every so many years. And basically, there's been all these people that have been killed 
over the years because of that. There used to be like a hospital there that it happened or something. Yeah. And so basically there that's what's happening to him where it's like, oh, we're going to make you better, but someone has to pay. Yeah. And it's going to be one of his family members. Pretty average movie in general. I'll let you take the lead on this about kind of what you thought of it, though. Uh, well, yeah, pretty average January horror movie. Uh, I will say, like, you know, I've talked about this in the past, I feel like with horror movies. It's very fickle, like, sometimes with haunted house movies, and this is even more specific, it's like, the pool's haunted. Um, and it goes back to, the, like you said, does it, did it say that it was like an aquifer or it was some kind of... Yeah, it was of, a natural spring. Natural spring. Kind of like the and, hot spring in Arkansas, kind of similar. And there's part of it that's like, something's worth the pool. Let's just not go in the pool anymore. Yeah. End of movie. But with White Russell's condition, that like opened the door for like, well, but he's getting a lot out of it. And and there's also the whole subplot of like him. He, lo- he clearly loves his family, but he also still wants to play baseball mm-hmm. and that his son even finds like him made he made a little video of him like trying out and working out and so he can maybe try to play again um and they had a classic watching that on the tv and then what are you doing appearing behind yeah, them it's yeah. like it's so annoying in any movie so i mean i thought the movie like the world building was like only jack nicholson can pull that off in the shining yeah. but was anyway. like surprisingly interesting and i like that conflict I've really been wanting White Russell to kind of be in more things for a while because he's terrific as the the lead in Lodge 49, who's also kind of this former athlete who had an injury and he's working with pools. There's a weird, I don't know, yeah. a weird combination of that. That's not a horror story. But um, so I've been waiting for him to kind of break out of that. I don't think this character on the page really did him many favors. Carrie Condon, I think, plays his wife, and she was pretty good. Um, but, yeah, I mean, on the whole – pretty average i mean i will say like any scene outside of the pool i was not the least bit um suspenseful however there was that surprising scene where carrie condon goes to visit the mother of Of a girl who died girl who died and the mother's straight up like haunted now basically and like it's got like water is black water coming out she was possessed by the water demon basically (laughs) (laughs) just to say out loud it's like wait what this is what this is yes this is what it is there was also a great moment when they were doing the marco polo scene and it was doing all these shot reverse shots of like hazy far away something yeah and then it cuts back to showing the character's face and that like the water demons up behind her. Yeah. It's like that was funny. Uh, it did get. It did give me slight lady in the water vibes, just purely from the premise, not necessarily yeah. the movie itself. But I was like, it reminded me of that. And even that, like, obviously, I think that's one of Shyamalan's worst movies, and I would actually like to rewatch it. But um, it at least like had. I, I did kind of compliment this movie just a little bit ago on like the world building enough and the conflict enough, but that movie did have a kind of a lore and a mythology to it that this movie really skirts by. Yeah, it was just like, oh, by the way, there's that, this, and anyway, and, like, yeah. you know, pretty slapdash, but to an extent to which you're not really mad or resentful the fact that you saw it. It's just like, okay. Yeah, I also love so the what? fact that it, like there were those parts where they like went way down in the pool and they looked up and there's like, the pool edge but it's like just sitting in darkness yeah. like that's a pretty inspired image yeah. um but yeah i mean it's just a really wacky kind of weird movie just that could like, have uh, been wackier and weirder too and like yeah. actually i'd say this i feel like it could have lost one kid like yeah two kids it's like 
you know, there was the whole thing about the one boy is shy and having trouble adjusting. Then the girl is meant there to be... The girl is literally there to be in the trailer and to have that scene of her and, and the guy in the crazy. pool. Yeah. And, but, you know, there's, like, nothing there with that. So, um... There's, like, a random subplot of, oh, he's a Christian, her boyfriend. It's like, okay. Oh, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Like just that. like, yeah. why is that? I don't know. As a Christian myself, I'm kind of like, all right, yeah. whatever. Um, but, oh, sorry, Christians don't play baseball, clearly. <laughs> But I mean, oh, you know, another character I kind of yeah. liked was the was the real estate lady. She's like, "Oh yeah, I didn't want to mention it, but people have died here." It's like, <laughs> which looks like it happens in every haunted house movie. Right? Eventually. It's like, yeah, uh, like I will say, it is like haunted house movie, but the pool. It's like, okay, we've done that now. We don't got to do that again. Right? It's fine, yeah. you know. But yeah, you know it. Yeah. So fine. Okay. Not great. Not awful though either. It could border on the awful, but it. it what did doesn't. you think of the section where this is kind of a spoiler, where Wyatt Russell literally goes full ham and is like possessed and chasing his daughter around the house? Yeah, that was like because <laughs> like, uh, then you've got the stuff going on underwater at the same time. Yes, and I'm like way more interested in that, that yeah. of what's going to happen there. And then it cuts back to ooh zombified weird well, possessed Wyatt it Russell. Needs, like it needs to. The movie needs to put him through this journey of like. He's a nice family guy, but deep down, he still wants to play baseball. But deep down, he still wants to play Well, baseball. that's what I was going to say. He's, he's, very then, much a, he's very much a Jack Torrance yeah. figure there at the end. But then, anyway, he's like, like, he gets possessed. But then, he has to make the decision, no, no, my family is more important I will than make me, the sacrifice. So, I will be the sacrifice. Yeah. And it's like, also, uh, why aren't everybody in the community coming up to him, like, uh, coming up to that family, like, what happened to your husband? Right. Like, well, that's what I wanted at the end, because they literally said, oh, we're not going to move, and they filled in the pool, and it's like... And then you even got to think about random baseball historians years yeah, later. right, right, right. Like, whatever happened to him? And it's like, oh, uh... There's some weird right. stuff happening in the pool, and yeah, he disappeared. It's like, it's like what? Like, I, they probably just said something like, oh, he drowned or something, and then they had like a mock funeral, I don't know. But then like, the people would be like, where's the body? And then... Right, or they, oh, they cremated... They probably cremated him or something, or well, they didn't, but, you know, like, they'd, oh, he cremated... That's what I was wondering, too, about the girl that died at the beginning, is like, how did they just say she drank? Like, what happened there? The body literally disappears, so it's yeah, like... I'm not saying you well, can't make know. horror movies in the modern world, but a lot of things years ago that could happen like that could be papered over and people just shrugging or whatever. Like, well, it used to the be, way things are now, that, yeah, that stuff cannot just The way that America used to exist is you could literally disappear into yeah. it. Like, it... Like, you literally could be anyone, anywhere. It didn't matter who you are or what you did or whatever. You could literally disappear into America itself. Yeah. And, like, now that's impossible. You literally can't do that anymore. Like, eventually you'll be found, like, you know. So, um, I would say overall the rap on this movie is not good, but didn't I didn't feel like my intelligence was being outright insulted. It was just a fine enough little horror movie you go to see. Yeah. And, again, we're I'm a big proponent of, like, you know, because there's a lot of people like, eh, I'll wait till that hits at home, or and then they never see it, period, because there's too many options now. I'm a big proponent of, yeah, you just, you, you know, we go to see those movies. We just, it's it was just, you know, the popcorn was good that night. You that know? And, I don't the, know what else that and those types of comedies like The House and Rough Night right. and Game Night. I know. Yeah. Oh my God, I just said Game Night's a one time only Which thing, is crazy that like, those movies are more and more... Uh, 
a product of the past in terms of just a studio right. content. Oh, I just go made. see a movie, yeah, right, or even No Hard Feelings or whatever. It's like yeah. I'm never probably going to watch those movies again. Uh, but that's there's fine. certain ones of them well, I might. You would agree that's yeah, fine, though. Yeah, I but mean, I'll yeah. remember certain things about them, you yeah. know, and laugh and go, oh, remember Dead Eye and Joyride, like, you know, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that would even be one I might would even rewatch before other ones necessarily, but, like, yeah. So this is its own version of that, too. It's like, yeah, okay, that was whatever. Like, one movie that I kind of thought was that at the time that I've actually continued to think about was Barbarian because that movie was just so weird and yeah. fascinating in so many ways uh, that that would be one I would rewatch. But there's a lot of horror movies I've went to see. I'm like, yeah, whatever. I'm like, Or know. just like Beekeeper with Jason Statham. It's like, yeah. just kill them all, shoot them up. Like, movie I, sort them out, action movie. Right, there was one movie I wanted to see at one point called The Rhythm Section. I don't know if you remember that. There's all these like random action movies I always wanted to see, familiar, and yeah. it's like, yep, I never saw that, and never will. Like American Assassin, you remember that with I uh, Michael when that Keaton? Came out. Yeah. It's like that was a movie I was like, oh yeah, gonna see that, and then never did. So yeah, now it disappeared. Yeah. It disappeared into America. There you yeah. go. Much like Toby Keith's uh, stance on his support of the Iraq War, never did, never did. Yeah. Speaking of things that are memorable though, that you don't forget, here is the trailer for 1998's. Velvet Goldmine. It doesn't really matter much what a man does with his life. What matters is the legend that grows up around him. Brian Slade was the wildest rock star to come out of London. The biggest thing since sliced Beatles. But that wasn't enough. We set out to change the world. What happened? Who did it? And why? Next week is the anniversary of the whole shooting incident. One journalist is about to look into the mystery. I was trying to contact you about a story. From the moment Brian Slade stepped into our lives, nothing would ever be the same. He was, in the end, like nothing he appeared. Right after everything crashed, Brian seemed to get lost in the lie. Came someone else. Miramax Films invites you to throw away your expectations and take a magical trip back to the 70s when the glam scene rocked London and the outrageous fashions, music, and behavior shocked the world. I knew I should create a sensation. Now, are you saying that the trailer is memorable or the movie is memorable? Because well, the movie trailer, is memorable. Yeah. Uh, the trailer, I wanted to intentionally find a trailer that was like, Bam. here is this. You know, <laughs> yeah. like, because this came out in 1998. I mean, it is very much. It has Christian Bale in it, and it's literally the same voices. He fights for family, and he lives for love. I know, that sounds like Trump. <laughs> he fights for family, and he lives for love, okay? Yeah. My favorite film is Velvet Goldmine. No way. <laughs> but anyway. Uh, Velvet Goldmine, of course, from Todd Haynes. Which, again, like I said earlier, it's staggering to me this is only his third movie. Mm-hmm. And especially, like, you know, you look at, like, Poison, that progression of, like, Poison, very small movie, but very audacious in a lot of ways. And then Safe is still, like, you know, you can tell a little more 
when I say put together, I mean like more like professional, yeah. more like something that's going to play at film festivals and maybe get released in a, in a theater more so. Mm-hmm. And then this is just like way more like has a bigger budget, like very clearly is going to garner yeah. way more attention just by purely what it is. But Levi, tell us a little bit about what Velvet Goldmine is and is all about. So... Velvet Gold Mine is a 1998 musical drama film written and directed by Todd Haynes from a story by Haynes and James Lyons, who was his kind of life partner. He died, I think, right before I'm Not There came out. Um, I think of a HIV-related illness or something. I looked it up a while ago. Set in Britain during the glam rock days of the early 1970s and tells the story of fictional bisexual pop star Brian Slade, who faked his own death. Uh, jumping down here, obviously, it played at Cannes. Uh, was nominated for the Palm Day or one best artistic contribution. Um, but it uh, uses nonlinear storytelling to achieve exposition while interweaving the vignettes of its various characters. Very much, and everybody compares it to this, it's the Citizen Kane of uh, rock and roll movies. Also queer glam um, rock. Right. Specifically, yeah. Yeah. Uh, obviously, mostly a David Bowie analog in certain ways. Also Brian Ferry of Roxy Music. Uh, Joe Braith, who was in, uh, or he was just himself, I guess, but he was another one of those, I think he was the first openly gay rock musician, uh, and on a major label, it says, yeah. Uh, and then Mark Bolin of, uh, T-Rex. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that's the main thing, is, as far as that. Basically, really, though, it follows the kind of main character of Christian Bale, is Arthur Stewart, who's this young Englishman at the time that all the glam rock is kind of erupting there in England. It did in America too, but that was mostly an English kind of thing that just preceded the punk rock movement just after it. Uh, and that he basically participated in a lot of that and saw Brian Slade and, and Ewan McGregor's Kurt Wilde, who's basically an Iggy Pop kind of Lou Reed analog, especially Iggy Pop. Uh, and seeing that as this, uh, and he's at, he is gay, officially, uh, and seeing that as this kind of, uh, you know, coming out for him and as a freedom to express himself through that music, uh, which was big for the LGBT community in general of the time of glam rock, was just being, to be that outward about that. Um, and, uh, it's all about him years later also having to research a story about Brian Slade who had basically tried to fake his own death, which failed, and then he basically disappeared after that because everybody was like, How, why would you do that? You're insane, whatever, and then he disappears. And so the whole movie's in 1984, him trying to go and find out what happened by talking to various people that he knew. And it's a whole you know, thing about his uh, life and... and through that, and also uh, in general about his, uh, as in uh, Brian Slade's life, mm-hmm. and kind of a what all that was, and who was he as a person, and it's interesting because it's kind of asking the same questions that I'm not there is, but it doesn't do it in the same way, right. obviously. But uh, that's the main gist. Where where do you exactly do you want to start with this movie? Because there's a lot of different places we could go. I think. Um. I think, like, you know, we're going to get into an attempt later of adapting Bob Dylan. Uh, yeah. And this, obviously, I think 
started out, as you said, I think earlier, as a way to kind of be about David Bowie. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the reasons the movie's so successful is that it like starts there, yeah. and as far as inspiration, and but then goes into this kind of amalgamation of all that glam rock was. And I'm no glam rock historian. I like it a lot better than the punk that kind of came on the mm-hmm. other end of it. But um, I think to me, from the outside looking in, the reason the movie's so successful is that you think it's going to be about these musicians and, oh, the highs and the lows and the rise and the fall. But ultimately, the emotional heart of this movie rests with Christian Bale's character, which going into the first time I saw it, and this was only the second time I'd seen it, I had, uh, I didn't know that that was the um, the end for yeah. the movie. Um, and I think, you know, the movie worked tremendously for me the first time. I quite liked it and loved it. But this time it was even more transformational to me, um, especially because there are so many layers to peel back and not even layers in the kind of, in some ways, superficial sense that I'm not there is going to have that we talk about, but the emotional layers of Bale's character's conception of who he is in relation to this and for how much of that he's on the outside looking in. Uh, he's, you know, he's removed from it. He's like, you know, he wants to be a part of it, he, but he's always on the fringes. Um, two moments in this movie really emotionally got to me. Um, and again, this is a movie that emotionally gets to you yet again yeah. in a way that I'm not there. Doesn't, isn't as interested yeah. in doing. I won't even say fails that. I don't think no, he really not cares all that much yeah. about being that right. way. But, um, the scene, I think one of the also very underrated performance on this is Tony Collette, who plays yeah. Slade's ex-wife, basically. Yeah. Um, where she's, to remember her uh, name. she's uh, I've got it here. Got it here, uh, Mandy Shades, her name. Yeah. Or Mandy Slade. Excuse me, Mandy Slade. Mandy Shade. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Jonathan Reese Myers plays Brian Slade. Um, where she's talking about. Um, the you know how she was removed from or how she kind of the falling apart of her marriage with Brian and how they went their separate ways and how she saw him I think a few weeks or a month or so later at another show I think it um you and McGregor's character uh, mm-hmm. Kurt Wild show I think it was was that what it was I think oh you're talking about at the end yeah and sh- and she says a line I'm gonna butcher it exactly I don't remember exactly what she says but I'm paraphrasing. She says something along the lines of like you, uh, you know, you never know how beautiful someone is until they're gone, or, mm-hmm. um, you know, when you're apart and you see them from afar, and then it immediately cuts to when Christian Bale's leaving home and his mother's kind of like out there looking for him and he sees her from the bus. Yeah. Um, that was a moment that, to me, I didn't even really register what like Haynes was going for the first time I saw it. Um, but, you know, and I think this is, I think David Bowie himself has even admitted to much as this, that for him, being queer was almost a fashion statement that he yeah. kind of went back years and later. That was the said, case with most of those glam rock stars. Uh, it was a time. fashion statement. It was a way to be different. It was even a way to spit in the face of the heterosexual rockers of the 60s that they were kind of trying to move away from. Right. But for somebody like Christian Bale's character, it was 
I'm going to lose my family to be who I am. You know, mm-hmm. it was it was very much saying I am this person and I can only be this person and you can either only love me or not love me, but I, this is who I am. Right. Yeah. And so and that's a very different of a movie because you can look at Brian Slater, Kurt Wilde or or Tony Collette's character and and them saying it's weird because it's like they and not that they didn't, but they're like we put it all on the line to do this. But it's like they're already, even despite whatever's going on in their lives, already kind of protected on that other side of stardom. Like they're already like, you're already made it. You're there. It doesn't matter what you do. You're famous, you know. Whereas they act like, oh, we put it all on the line. But the And none of them remember him. And we can talk about that later, about how much to which these people remember that he was ever there, Christian Bale's character. But it's like they treat him with, oh, whatever, you know, we were this and we were that. And it's like, but he's, he was the one, like you said, who put it all on the line and actually really lived the life they never really lived anyway. And even Which, like, but, you know, towards the yeah. end when he sees Wild again, Wild's kind of bored with talking about it, mm-hmm. thinking about it. Like, and for so much of the movie, like, it's a weird thing. I think, you know, Bale's character, um, which I keep mentioning, what's his? Uh, Arthur, 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 Arthur Stewart. Stewart, sorry. Uh, Arthur, Arthur Edwards is the villain in Hitman, in the Hitman game, sorry. Uh, you know, he's kind of like going through the motions and bored. Yeah. Uh, but then when we cut to like the younger version of him, he's obviously, he's on the periphery. You almost feel like he's always just wanting to look right. and get an up-close yeah. glance or maybe, maybe even have an interaction with one of these people. You know, he's like very much this eager fan and then we cut to this, like, you know, which is obviously a very intentional choice by Haynes part. The 80s in this is very ugly, very monochromatic, or Orwellian. Yeah. Like, it's um, that it talks about President Reynolds. Yeah. But it's like Reagan, yeah. obviously. Yeah, but, uh, and yeah. it's just all very, like, the there's this loss of life and this death. Now, this movie does not make a big statement about AIDS in any meaningful way. But I have to think, obviously, Poison is a more yeah and complicatedly safe. interesting movie with obviously those with that. But I do feel like there is this sapping of culture that a lot of the gay community, which of course Haynes is a yeah. part of, had to see with what '80s culture was. It was like taking a lot of the glitz and neon and glitter of the glam rock era slash queerness and like boiling it down to aesthetics that in the real world was disappearing because and the of the death of, the, of this generation yeah generations of um gay and queer people right you and know. then there was even that of i mean this is kind of a spoiler but it turns out that brian slade is actually this other guy uh what's his name i'm trying to think tommy stone uh who is this very like white bread a rock star that's very like pro Reagan and like that he basically became that and that that is ultimately just saying all he ever wanted in his own way was the fame and it didn't really matter who he was and uh, that you know, animated and, somebody like Stuart uh, or Arthur's um, profession like what he became yeah. and who he is but even he himself is like bored by what the current state of rock and roll music is in the 80s by then, you know. Um, the second moment that really emotionally got to me, and I think this ultimately culminates in what Arthur's journey is, is when he finally tracks down and interviews Kurt Wilde, played by Ewan McGregor. 
And earlier, we had seen that, you know, in the flashback sequences, that Arthur and Kurt actually had had a sexual experience together, which clearly meant a great deal to Arthur, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and there's there's a question over to what extent Kurt even remembers that. Obviously, he's somebody who partied and was on drugs, and so his memory is yeah. obviously in question. And that's another thing too. I love that the unreliable narrators narrators of this movie yeah. because they yeah. all they all have different aspects of Brian to interview or to say in their interviews but like we don't and what I love about this movie is some people would probably see it as a problem that we don't actually really know who the real quote uh, Slade is I mean he's just this abstraction that other people attach meaning to or the, right. or, or in relation to it's kind of the uh, the inverse of I'm not there of like let's really try and figure out this person and, from the inside, uh, right. and, and the inside this has all like, these parts. In this, it's the outside of saying it really was a bunch of nothing, but it's all of what it meant to these people is what matters about it. Yeah. yeah. And throughout the movie, kind of, um, you know, in the same way Rosebud is obviously, we mentioned Citizen Kane, kind of the, the MacGuffin of what does Rosebud mean. The, there's a sort of a MacGuffin that kind of occurs throughout this movie of this... Um, Literally... Alien jewelry given to Oscar Wilde as well. Then it says that Oscar Wilde was an alien, by the way. Yeah, yeah. The uh, movie but... begins <laughs> with like the alien arrival of Oscar yeah, Wilde, basically, well, yeah. and saying that he he was like the the root that all of the glam rock can be traced back to, which I think right. is a very interesting person to pick. I think Oscar Wilde. Was he? Do we know for he sure was he was queer yes. or gay? Yeah, I, thought, I, I know that there's been yeah. speculation about that over the years, but that that like that irreverence that he yeah. had in his literature and obviously in his real life, the everything that came from that tradition started with him. Yeah, and so because there's that great moment where I want to be a carpenter, yeah. I want to be a farmer. I want to be a pop idol. Yeah. <laughs> and how incomprehensible yeah. that had to have been in the 19th century yeah, to say I mean, that out loud, yeah. which of course is right. the absurdity. Right, yeah. Changes. And the teacher's like, oh, you do, do you? Like, do you know what that means? Like, yeah. so. The, no, I, before we move, yeah. before we say anything else, one of my favorite openings to any movie, even all the way through the opening credits, literally just like, I remember when I was first watching that, I literally was like, what the hell am I watching? What is this? Like, and, then the, it, you know, and then even past that, the yeah. opening is like quoting A Hard Day's Night, right. which then in its own way shows back up and I'm not there actually too. But yeah. um, And to that point, it made me think, Haynes, yeah. I bet Haynes is not super into the Beatles. The combination of the way, in his own interest, I would presume, yeah. about what rock music are cast a kind of a side eye at 60s rock and roll combined with the Beatles are, and I don't even think this is a problem, treated as a semi-joke and I'm not there as far as their depiction in that movie. Mixed with and the Velvet Underground documentary which of course are not Haynes' own perspectives exactly but the amount of time that is given to Lou Reed's hatred and dislike or disinterest in what the Beatles were makes me think that Haynes himself was probably not a, which I don't think is a problem that's yeah. his own opinion but yeah. I just found there's enough breadcrumbs for me to start wondering to what extent Haynes yeah, loves I do or wonder likes about that the Beatles too. or what he thinks yeah. of the Beatles right um, and so well he's also it should be noted uh, and of course I'm going to talk about this but when he was 
an adolescent and kind of growing up, obviously in the 70s, he was real into that, the glam rock stuff. But then in the 80s, became real into the whole uh, no-wave movement and Sonic Youth. He's yeah. a big Sonic Youth fan, and, he's, and I mean, Kim Gordon was in I'm Not There, and he got them to make... He actually got some of them to make some music for this movie a little bit, or to, like, mm-hmm. cover songs of that for that. Right. I think they got some people from Radiohead do that, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, like, he knows Sonic Youth and good friends with them and everything. But so, like, he, I know he was... And I've heard him talk about that before, about... One time, there's some story he was telling. You know, when I was, you know, smoking pot high outside my parents' house in L.A., listening to Sonic Youth, whatever. And I was just like, what? Like, but... Anyway, that so he's also into a whole other era yeah. of music too that that was honestly more influenced by that you know the Iggy Pop, yeah. Velvet Underground stuff yeah, than right. like the Beatles yeah, were. Right. No, again, I just I and just then even think... Karen Carpenter being part of that too yeah. as being this pseudo uh, Marilyn Monroe esque figure for that era of yeah, music right. of people looking at Karen Carpenter and saying, "What's up with that? What was that whole thing?" And you know. Mm-hmm. And the, yeah, so uh, anyway, um, and so this, uh, especially like it looks like this emerald, like yeah, the Oscar Wilde thing. Yeah, it's uh, like a it's like a pin, pin yeah. or like amulet kind of yeah. thing, and it's passed between these characters. And of course, also that you know there was this character I wanted to mention just to some extent, Jack Ferry. Yeah, who was like. Because that's who it went to first after Oscar Wilde, I think. That was like the person before the person. He was one of those people that uh, Slade looked at and Brian Slade and tried to like pull that androgyny or that like cross dressing, which was novel by the you know early to mid '60s, and like make it a little more mainstream by the time he's in his glam rock era. Um, But then it's given to. Slade, who then he, I think he, does he then give it to McGregor's character? I don't yeah. remember exactly what the, you know, the timeline of progression is. Um, and then gives it, wants to give it to Arthur, um, who we, by the audience, know that, like, oh, this is, this was given. This, this is was, this literally was an alien by, life form. By Oscar Wilde, the <laughs> yeah. alien. Right. And it's gone yeah. between all these outsized, like, supernatural, literally or figuratively, like, people who are larger than life. And here's this journalist who has always been on the outside looking in, being offered this. And I feel like Haynes implicitly is, you know, gifting... Arthur's character with the knowledge that we implicitly as an audience have about what the progression of this traditional It's almost like, is. this is random, but it's almost like the, uh, this, you're literally going to be like, what? Like, in Dune, when the, the Bene Gesserit Reverend Mothers have this, when they become a more of a Reverend Mother over the group, they, they do this ceremony where they literally, uh, drink this thing that gives them the collected memories of the entire tribe, and it's like that they're with, and yeah. so it's like this this super sensory yeah. uh, knowledge over like that's what's wrong with that girl that's uh, his sister is because she was yeah. in the womb when that happened to his mother, and so she has this like you know. Yeah. But anyway, it's like a similar thing, like what you're saying, where it's like this collective experience through this. Object, object, yeah, and uh, I think like most of us, uh, Arthur's character is or Bale's character is so just like I can't accept this. This is too much, 
And he's like, as Cinch says something like, okay, well, suit yourself. And then leaves. And then you come to find out he actually put the... Put it in the beer put bottle. Put it in yeah. the beer bottle that he's he's about yeah. like chokes on it and he realizes that's what it is. And then he has to keep it, basically. And yeah. I'm going to try... We'll try not to get emotional talking about this. Um, and then he smiles. This is the only time that we have seen this character in this 80s section of the movie have any sense of happiness about who he is and... This, uh, this uh, you know, this, like, I'm now in this tradition of person and I am you know now I am now a part of these people and as far as a depiction of fandom I've ever seen of anything it really it really got to me this time watching it um mm-hmm. in terms of just um like I said this character who was on the outside looking in this whole time and just felt like, how could I ever be in concert or one with these people? And here it is happening in this moment, which, um, yeah, I'm sorry to get emotional about this, but yeah, well, and something think, that really yeah. hit me this time that, um, was, you know, just, I didn't feel the first time watching it, which I think, mm, speaks to Haynes's talent as an emotional filmmaker. We can get caught up in the aesthetics of what this is all about. We can get caught up mm-hmm. in, ooh, like this is a one-to-one comparison um, to Bowie or to Roxy Music mm-hmm. or to uh, the Stooges or all or these T-Rex things. Or, yeah, or whatever. And yeah. that instead, this is Haynes in this kind of almost autobiographical, memoiric moment situating himself in depicting this world. And I just found that to be incredibly um, emotionally satisfying as a viewer. Mm -hmm. Um, And another thing about that, too, that I think really works about that is that I get the sense that he doesn't expect, nor we are to expect, that Arthur's character is going to become anything. That the point is him saying that everyone can be that or everyone can be that artist or that genius they don't have to be famous, though, and that's not yeah. really the point yeah, right. of it. And I don't even know if that, to get into the weeds of this, I don't even know if that's what the aliens intended for Oscar Wilde to do with that gift or not. The point is that it's supposed to be this, what it calls in the opening narration, a great gift, which whatever that means to whoever it is. But the point is, like you said, yeah, this inclusion into that, and like I said earlier, that he really lived the life they lived right along with him, or even more than they did, and actually was an authentic person. Um, when, you know, we were and, talking about this you know, just the other day. Like, I'm, that moment made me start to wonder to what extent he actually did remember him, right? And because, like you, you know, said, the, he wouldn't probably obviously just give the, that away. The experience anybody, didn't probably mean nearly what it did to. Uh, uh, you know, uh, McGregor's character than it did uh, to him. Right. But that he's still like, oh, I I still recognize you as one of us in some implicit way, and so I'm going to gift you with this. And, uh, again, I just found that to be incredibly emotionally satisfying. Mm -hmm. Um, And 
something that, again, I think creeps up on me about this movie, because, again, I really liked it the first time, but, you know, Arthur's own journey in conjunction with theirs and kind of on the outside and how that eventually wraps around to the conclusion. Um, and, again, that, like, finally he gets, like, even a moment or certainly a object of joy that again, we see is totally lacking from him in the 80s section of the movie because he's just like walking around like a right. zombie. Yeah. It doesn't want to do this. Like, brings you know, like up. I said, we joked it was like he was going to have to cover a Rolling Stones show, which those who aren't aware, Rolling, the Rolling Stones in the 80s were were like what Zeppelin was by the late 70s. And mm-hmm. I mean, and they were already that in the 70s too, but especially after that run of like, you know, from like... Uh, Beggar's Banquet through, like, some girls' era of, like, Rolling Stones, which is, like, the best stuff. Like, that's all the great stuff, more or less. After that, it was kind of, like, you know, Tattoo You and whatever. But just, like, very establishment rock by that point was the Rolling Stones. Like, the only thing that could have been another version of that was, like, the hair metal of the era, which wasn't even didn't have that uh, authority that the Rolling Stones did. Right. But so like, yeah, he's clearly doesn't care. And I think that's actually another really good and I am a fan of Bowie, the pop star of the eighties. I mean, we got heroes out of that. Like how could you not like that? Other than its use at the end of Jojo Rabbit. But um (laughs) Which is something I think will be very heavily studied and questioned as the years go. That movie I've been thinking about more recently really was I don't even think it's an objectively bad movie. Like, I think it works fine enough. But just all the baggage around that movie has just proven to make it look even worse yeah. after the. But, but anyway, because there was that part where he's like, uh, F off Hitler and like yeah. kicks him out the window. And it's like. And you can just no see certain audience like would be cheering yeah. that and be like, oh no. But anyway, the, um, what was I even talking about? Oh, yeah, that he's like, just doesn't care about. Oh, well, that's what I was saying. So I even like the 80s Bowie yeah, right, as pop right. star Bowie. But, like, you can see that Tommy Stone as its own version of uh, Haynes kind of pushing against that and saying, yeah, but you kind of became this. What, what's well, with that? I think or, most know. people would argue that happened. that's happened to Elvis Yeah, the later stage. Anything yeah. that is once, like, once uh, at one time was hot, was vibrant, was sexual, was different, gets kind of watered down over time. And that's kind of and what people were saying about Bob Dylan with his electric air, which of course proved to be totally false, but yeah. that was an assumption that people were having is that he was selling out, yeah. you know. Uh, and interestingly, the Beatles never did that. They almost did the opposite. They almost went from being old to pop you know the pop bubblegum yeah. music to like we're not going to tour and we're going to record music which is by the way still going to be some of the highest selling music of all time and we didn't even tour it like mm-hmm. that's how big and different they were and then they like but, you know yeah when there were arguably they stopped at their height when they were still the biggest act in the world you know which yeah uh, and it, don't don't you find this is kind of a one-off thing but i feel like somebody should write something about this don't you find it really kind of tragic that the last true Beatles concert was at Candlestick Park, which doesn't even exist anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's like we can't. No, that, even, I remember like, that was something that people know, brought up when um, when, they, when, tore they, down, when they tore it down and put in Levi Stadium. Levi Stadium yeah. And people said, "Yeah, like, I know it's all my fault." I know, yeah. <laughs> that like people were like, you know, like 
well, why can't we just enhance what we have? Why does it have to be this new? And I know it sounds stupid to say thing. why would we save an entire stadium just because the Beatles played there? But it's like I don't know. It's like you know what I. It, there it are sounds like silly, these, but it's like this might also sound silly. But there yeah. are whole structures throughout Europe that have been preserved and preserved and preserved and preserved over yeah. hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And some people might think this is silly, but like where the Beatles played. In American culture, yeah, this and for the I, last I know, I know time, I'm gonna get in trouble like, like John Lennon did, yeah. but like that is akin to what American religion, and we can yeah. take issue with what that is, but that is yeah. akin to what American religion is, is those pop cultural and that wasn't even American, spaces, it was, you know, Brit, Britain, but yeah, no, like, and I know they did that whole rooftop concert, whatever, but like that was yeah. the beat, that was it, that was the yeah. Beatles, was that, and like I said. Uh, that really only dawned on me now that like we can't even go to where that happened. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? I mean, yeah, you can go to Levi's Stadium or whatever. You can go to the, oh, they stood in this spot, I guess. But like people take pictures of yeah, Abbey Road walking right. across the street. But it's yeah. like we can't go. Like I feel like I, I know this. A lot of people are probably hearing this and being like, "Why do you even care about that?" But it's like we can't even go to where that happened. Like that just still yeah. feels very tragic to me. But anyway. Um, but th- this, you yeah. know, I feel like by the end of the movie, like, his character is making peace with the fact that this is over. Yeah. And that we're moving on from this. And, again, per- part of it is a personal satisfaction thing, I think, for him. He's like... And I also thought, too, we didn't really mention this. I thought it's a subtext going on of, like, when he's told to go cover this or write this story, he's like, why do you want me to do it? Almost, like, implying that he knows that they're thinking, oh, you're the gay one. You know all that You're the stuff. gay British man, yeah. And right. they don't say that out loud. Yeah. But that is, I think also he's having to relive that identity and what all that meant to him. And while there was a lot of good stuff that came out of it, there's also the painful memories that come from it. And he's implicitly battling against that as he's going through, um, you know, this whole experience of, covering this and kind of regurgitating and recontextualizing it right. for the 80s. Well, that and that's another thing inherent in that, too, is that, like you said, him being beaten down by that, I mean, he looks like, I mean, yeah, he wears like a leather jacket and he's like, you know, he's Christian Bale. I mean, he looks like, a, oh, he's a cool guy, you know. But you look at him then and then you look at what he looked like when he was a younger person. By the way, really successful young to old transition as mm-hmm. something like actually by looks the same, really good the same person yeah because yeah. that's something that is so tough to pull off but i didn't doubt at any moment in the movie and, it's, and a lot of way, just but, subtle costumes yeah yeah it ain't even that body language that yeah. obviously he's given right and ain't even that you know much to do but it's just yeah that that was really impressive to me i didn't even think about it until now i was thinking about it but um that yeah that he did, but he looks like an establishment person by then, and that him being given that jewelry again is a, you know to go back to that is almost like Kurt Wilde saying even in this even while we're uh you know like in the Judean captivity or whatever you want to call it in a version of that even though we're uh you know oppressed we can still keep that version of us inside of us even yeah. if you you know and they can't break that like you right. know and kind of so that i think is another kind of implicit meaning of that is even in the 80s of like we can still be who we are anyway 
But yeah, like you said, but, the '80s depicting this is a lot more Orwellian. Yeah, there's well, no, aspects of it that remind me of Brazil. Like, yeah, no, there's the literally parts of like where there's literally a shot where he's like, "Yeah, we can't do this anymore. Goodbye." Hangs up the phone, and there's like two suits like sitting there staring at him, like, "Yeah." And it's like there's a literal conspiracy going on. Mm-hmm. Like, that's like a random, like, all the way to the yeah, side right. of the movie. Oh, by the way, there's a government conspiracy happening here. And yeah. it's like, and what's so funny is he did, he's not even interested in that. Like, Haynes doesn't even care. He's like, oh, yeah, by the way, this is going on, but yeah. whatever. Don't worry about that. And it's just like, what? Like, but, uh, yeah. So. I think there, uh, again, I think to a large extent, there is a subtext that um, can't be forgotten about. Haynes depicting in the 90s a look back of the 80s looking back at the 70s there's kind of a Russian nesting doll structure of this that again I think is mourning the loss of when queer was the most mainstream and in a, and now now it is in another way I guess but like when it was new though when it was new yeah. and when it was novel when it felt so full of life and how that eventually was commodified, and that was eventually Well, interestingly, mine. too, how, you know, uh, like, I know a random amount about this for a band I don't even really like, of the Sex Pistols. Like, the Sex Pistols kind of came out of, the in, the, in British punk rock, came out of that, like, I don't know if you ever knew about this, there were those, like, uh, uh, stores called, literally called Sex. Yeah, Those, right. like, stores in England that were these very, like, kind of started in that now i'm not a fashion like historian or even a punk rock historian exactly but from what i understood kind of start were part of and participated in that glam rock style which then slowly eased out and became punk rock and kind of a lot of those bands came out of that scene of those stores like for example you probably don't maybe don't even know this i watched this in that one show they made uh uh, called Pistol that was about the Sex Pistols yeah. that uh, Danny Boyle did for Hulu, which actually was an all right show. I didn't ever finish it, but uh, that uh, randomly the main I can't remember her name now. The main woman in the Pretenders actually yeah. worked at one of those and was good friends with the the Sex Pistols, and she was like Canadian, but she worked in England. Uh, what's her name? Uh, Christy Hine. Yeah, Christy Hine. Uh, that, Chrissy Hine. Or Chrissy Hine, that yeah. she was like part of that whole world and kind of was worked in some of those places and kind of was at the beginning of that whole movement in its own way. But so that, yeah, that, uh, that even glam rock got, like I said, not commodified into punk because punk was its own version of not wanting to be commodified. But even as a person who is a relative punk rock fan immediately was commodified into its own thing and was kind of a farce and of a clown show and it's on what as far as like what it's because that's the funny thing to me i actually what was interesting to me is that with punk rock to talk about that briefly i never really cared about what the politics never did about what the politics or the social aspects of that were i actually liked the music which Sounds weird because everybody at the time, it's like there's that part in uh, 20th Century Women, which I think a great scene where they play mm-hmm. Black Flag. And I really love that album too, by the way. But uh, the Nervous Breakdown EP and then going to write a lo-fi EP. Yeah. Um, and then they put on Talking Heads instead. But before that, she's nodding. She's like, they know they're not good. So I get that, but like, what's the what's the deal? Well, she's trying like, at least, right. to like, But to me, I'm like, I never want like I know that was a whole thing about punk rock that they're like, we're not good and we don't care. But to me, 
that style became so influential that when you go back now, I, in my opinion, it goes back to just kind of being good, in my opinion. Like, I know a lot of people listen to that and go, this sounds like trash, or, oh, I don't like them screaming, or whatever. But to me, it's like, I think that became a part of punk rock that people just, the actual, the substance yeah. of it was actually the sound yeah. and not what was being said to the point where what was being said was actually what was empty all along and it was more about well, at that the point, feeling you know, some of, of the it, aesthetics know. of right. this era yeah. of glam rock, yeah. it was more about we can do this, not how does this reflect the quote, the music. I mean, right. like that, those, and that happens with every era of music and so much of fashion and of culture comes from music is more it's an accessory to the music it's not the music itself and i feel like that's a statement being made in this movie about that those two things operated at the same time but were always not necessarily in concert with each other right um, mean, yeah you know yeah and so that yeah like i say that's all i say with punk rock to me it's more about the feeling and the power of the music rather than yeah what it meant like it didn't mean anything and and that's honestly i think that that's what it probably started as was i want to that uh, and that's kind of what punk rock has always been is i want to uh put my i want to make i want to feel this way and i want other people to feel this way but then it becomes all about this like right wing left wing like because that's the funny thing about punk rock is it's so randomly divergent split on either the right or the left yeah um, to the point where I don't think it can be identified as either. Um, and well, it don't it, even operate in a traditional American no, political structure, right? And then, well, yeah. right, because it started kind of British and then it became American, and it, yeah, but it's anyway, almost it, a rejection of traditional political ideas, anyway. Right. Well, I mean, and it's also a rejection of the of the countercultures more positive outlook by saying, no, we're going to be angry and mean, and we're going to and we like that, and that's what you know. But anyway, stop talking about punk rock. To get back to this movie, I mean, we've covered a lot of it, but I think one way I wanted, one thing I kind of wanted to say is, well, we'll talk about his multi-hyphenate style first real quick because this will go into that. Haven't you thought it's interesting because I've thought about this the last few movies of his I've really watched, paid attention to. How much he's interested and fascinated by the news magazine style of journalism yeah. Meaning that, like, there's parts in this movie where it's, like, late night to, or, like, evening TV covering this stuff. Then all of Karen Carpenter, yeah. superstar, superstar Karen Carpenter stories, basically that. Parts of Poison are that. Because the part that you, that you likely forget about, and I usually don't think about with Poison either, is the part about that boy that killed his own stepfather and then yeah. flew away. Yeah. And that's, like, treated as this, like, literally, like, a news magazine, like, an Inside Edition story or something, or, like, a, 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 a Nightline or whatever. And then that happens sort of slightly again, and I'm not there, with the stuff with Julianne Moore, the stuff with... Uh, the Jack Rollins stuff. And then it happened again in May, December yeah. a little bit. And do you so think, it's like, um, just to run this back, yeah. uh, do you think to some extent that has anything to do with him making commentary out of how queer stories are often told in the public eye that there are all these tabloids yeah, and it's that, lurid right. and yeah. it's dirty and it's nasty and it, you know, or also, and also yeah. him wanting to scratch below the surface of what those types of stories are, and say, 
well, these stories that are so absurd, let me give you right. a look. Or and also, these, these are all about people's about. feelings, yeah. is what this is about. And that's one of the things I feel like he could have done a little bit of a better job of May, December, is saying, okay, but I get what you're saying, which is that these people have feelings for each other, and we know this is wrong in a legal standpoint, but what, like, questioning that, and I get that. But it's like, okay, but then what's the answer? Like, yeah. What do you think about it? Is what I'm wondering. You and know, two, and so. he would have been somebody who would have came up and been raised, obviously, in the 70s and the 80s, and you think about, like, you know, the the real story of Dog Day Afternoon yeah. or these serial killers. the explosion killers of reality television. That happened in the 70s, yeah. and then even in the 80s, like, queer serial killers and how queerness was so often depicted, or even, like, even going back a little further, like, how dark and dimly lit the world of Velvet Underground was in the 60s, and I do feel like, yeah, to some extent, that is something that he's interested yeah. in, and I think that some of that is a, him giving commentary to how often those queer stories, the closest they ever came into a lot of eras in American society, filtering into the, quote, mainstream. Yeah, and another version of this that stands outside of this, obviously, because it's not the same person, is Paul Thomas Anderson's original version of uh, Boogie Nights was Dirt that Diggler short story, film, the Dirt yeah. Diggler story, and that's very much that. Mm-hmm. This sounds random, but yeah, I think you're on to something with that, and you kind of explained it far better than I would have, and I wouldn't have thought about it that way, but I think that's the answer. To give an example, I still remember the first time I ever saw 60 Minutes on television was at uh, we call her Grandmommy's house, who we told the story about Snow Day about, if you want to go back and yeah. watch that. It was at her old house when I was a kid, before she moved, you know, that old house. And I was sitting there watching it, and it was about, I remember the story was something about a bodybuilder who, like, had all these health problems, obviously, because of what he was doing to himself or whatever. And it was just this very, as a child, it felt very oppressive and frightening. Mm -hmm. And like you're describing it, this very, like, oh, this guy pushed himself to the limit. And this is what happened to him. And it's like all this, these things are the basis like, of true crime, right? Today, by and the it's way. like yeah, and and I think, like I said, it's seen as the and then kind of wrapping that in, like I said, with the queer element, seems like this this deviant, mm-hmm. like uh, this they're like uh, the news va- news magazine's version of deviant behavior, yeah, whatever that be, whether it be sexual or uh, physical, or whatever, or violence, and seeing all that as together. Like I said, that's yeah the feeling I get from that. Like you said, putting it in that perspective, open that in my mind of that feeling I get from when I first watched that sixty minutes thing of that like feeling of and these pictures up and that was like back in the early two thousand. So it was like pictures of him Polaroids of stuff and it's like very lurid and yeah. uh, it's weird because it's voyeuristic, but it's like there's an, there's another version of voyeurism which is like sitting above it where it's like it, it's almost like it's all laid out on this like table lit by these sickly fluorescent lights yeah, where it's right. all like it's but all there for you to you, see you don't want right, to you it, shouldn't see but you kind of want to but also like you shouldn't see but it's too late because it's yeah, being investigated right, and right, it's right. like it's like you're the policeman looking at all right. of it, trying to figure it out, and it doesn't matter what it is. It's like there's not even a question of voyeurism. It's like you're just going to do this whether you want to or not. And, like, I don't know. This is all going off topic, but, like, 
I've noticed that with his movies, that recurrence. And I think you're right about that, maybe. And I, I'd be interested. That's If I, had to, I ever had to ask him one question, it would probably be that. Like, what, what's your interest in news magazine storytelling? Because yeah, that's something that pops yeah. up. And he and might that, say a version of that. And I don't that know, was but. becoming more in vogue in, like, the late 70s through the 80s, in part because of how crazy the culture of the 70s was. Right. And this depiction yeah. of the... Well, and that, know, that was partially things. already being kind of documented in Network, where they're talking about the uh, that whatever liberation army that's going to go rob those banks and they're going to yeah. film them doing it or whatever you know and that like well the whole idea of that was but. of that era of the 60s moving onwards as uh sexuality and violence as entertainment now yeah. you could go back and say Sax well what about like uh what you know what about like film noir of the 40s is kind of that it's like yeah but it's not nearly as, not as explicit. explicit as what Right. Sex and violence as entertainment became in the 60s moving forward. Unless you read the James Elroy books, which proves that in the 50s people were just as effed up as they were in the 70s. Yeah. But, but, in, inter- but in mainstream entertainment. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah. Because in that, uh, it's talking about pulp magazines. Yeah. And like, and it's, like, it's, it's all right. that stuff's kind of off the stuff side that's of like traditional People culture. that have their own printing presses would make and these sickos yeah. that make that stuff. Because that's literally what LA Confidential is about for the most part. Yeah. But, yeah, that... Uh, and... Also, well, there was something else I was going to say about that, but yeah, I think that's probably the answer. Like I said, that you the what you came to there is that that is a a reflection on um, American views on what is seen as abnormal behavior or whatever that. Be. But is ultimately what he's I think saying always is all generated by the same desire. It's whatever that person's willing. It's up to whatever the individual person is what they're gonna what they're gonna do with it. What are they gonna do with that desire? Are they gonna take it to the fullest limit or what? Yeah, you know. Um, one question I was gonna ask. I don't think we wrote it down. Mm. Um, to what extent do you find Brian Slade to be uh, a sympathetic figure in this movie in this story? Uh, practically none whatsoever. Um, what do you think that means then for the movie? Nothing. What it's trying to it's, say? It's like, weird because I, I said this at the time we were watching. I said this is probably the best movie I've ever seen where I literally the protagonist or the center of the movie literally means nothing. Like there's it's they're a blank slate in their own way. Uh, because even that is not the case with Citizen Kane. I was going to say with that, like, you know, like he yeah. he's contemptible, but you all you always you have a there's an end. And that you kind of understand who he is and why he makes the decision he is, even when you don't like him. Yeah, it's like I was looking at that one shot in the movie. That's a great movie. Do you know that? Yeah. I was looking at that one shot in the movie. You probably remember it where Agnes Moorhead's standing at the uh, window looking out. But, uh, or there, or no, actually, that's another shot I'm thinking of. There's the shot of them all sitting, writing on the paperwork, and it's a... Uh, uh, telephoto lens where you can see far into the background and you can see out the window yeah, right, right, right. Charlie playing in the snow by himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's one and of the most famous like, deep focus shots. And ever, it's yeah. like that shot literally saying he's always going to want to be that person. Mm-hmm. That's what Rosebud right. yeah, and it like, was. Yeah. That it's all the way far away. It's, not, it's like it's outside of the movie in its own way. It's like far away. And so in that way there's an emotional undercurrent clearly to that from the beginning because that's like early in the movie. This movie's but, emotional undercurrent is currently hung on Christian Bale. Yes. Oh, yeah. Which I think, again, and, is an unexpected thing from the outside right. looking in about your expectations of what a rock movie is. Right. But I do think 
it doesn't want us. I don't even think the movie wants us to be sympathetic about Brian Slade. No, yeah, maybe but not. But it does ask the question: What does he want from life? And there's that scene where and, Tony Collette walks in right. on him with another girl, and he's literally snorting cocaine off of her. It's like, is this yeah. what you always and wanted? He's like, basically, yeah. And and you believe, and I think everybody believes that's true. Even he believes it's true. Yeah. But ultimately, it becomes the question: Who are you, also? And the answer is nothing. Uh, it's literally like I don't even know what I am, and yeah. that's and that's the difference from I'm not there. Is that Bob Dylan was always questioning? I'm so many people. I'm so many things. Whereas he's like, I'm literally nothing, and I don't care to be. Even Kurt Wilde is somebody who it talks about, and this was actually true from the perspective of Lou Reed's life that he had had this electroshock therapy for having this deviant, you know, homosexual yeah. behavior. Um, and that he's somebody who wanted to always be something, even still, even in his ridiculousness. Brian Slade, like I said, almost stands more as a representative as this uh, dynamo or catalyst towards all these other people. Uh, well, that was the know. thing. I feel like he, and this is true of Susan Kane to an extent, but in this movie it's like, the the more fleshed out characters feel like all the people that Arthur is interviewing throughout the movie, whether it be his ex wife, one person we haven't really said anything about is his first manager. Yeah, uh, those that guy, um, of course, who uh, comes Kurt out Wilde of that nineteen sixties British homosexual like swinging sixties scene. Yeah, right. And he he has AIDS at the end in the movie. It, it shows or he's basically going to die probably pretty soon. And mm-hmm. another very tragic, very interesting character that I thought a lot about. Um, and then with Kurt Wilde, like... And then Eddie Arthur, Izzard, we even talking about Eddie yeah, Izzard. Yeah, but movie, all but, these people yeah. on the periphery feel like more fleshed out people than who he is. Right. And I, I don't think that's a problem with the no, movie. Yeah. I think it makes the movie more fascinating, actually, yeah. uh, as a study of what art means to people, sometimes more than the creator, what it means. And obviously some of those people are indeed creators themselves. But how art and certain movements how they can like they explode like an atom bomb and they affect these people and then the the center itself is nowhere to be found mm-hmm. it's destroyed it's zero. or it's called it's, zero for yeah, a reason yeah i mean uh or moved on in this case to be something that's inauthentic right. and not representative well there's that uh, there's that part where uh it's one of my favorite kind of emotional moments in the movie is where that guy is standing there, his original manager standing there watching him for the first time, and he's playing he's playing uh some Roxy music song, I can't remember what it is, and he's just standing there watching him and kind of smiling and it's like that's that's version of like what happened in vinyl where like Bobby Cannavale goes to that punk show for the first time and he's like, Oh my god, what a rush, you know, or whatever. Uh and not that that's a bad version of that exactly, but like I felt like this was a more authentic version yeah. of that of like actually having an emotionality to it, which mm-hmm. was different than that, you know. Um, you saying vinyl of like didn't the, emotionally tickle your fancy? Huh? <laughs> saying vinyl didn't. Emotionally well, also tickle this your represent. Fancy. Well, no, but this yeah. also represents a changing from the '60s queer culture from the to the '70s queer yeah, culture, right. and almost even. Literally, with Eddie Izzard, who is himself a queer icon, yeah. and, and you know, saying both of them saying, "Oh no, you go over here. It's our time to do this." And then, then he's kind of like relegated to literally like a a, a sick facility with AIDS years later, and saying like, "Oh, the '70s queerness is moving on from the '60s queerness," and kind of, I said, his own 
reflections on that, obviously. Uh, Todd Haynes' reflections on that, but... Not a big deal, but I was just checking. Eddie Izzard now identifies as a she, uh, her, she. Okay, so, I wasn't yeah, sure I know, about I know, that. Yeah, I know, yeah. But, yeah, I, f- I wasn't sure about yeah. that either way. Um, but, uh, yeah, we've said a lot about this movie without me just saying, as I said in the moment of... Because uh, we've talked about all that it means, but Knox said so much about the style we have in the sense of the way it's told nonlinearly. This is one of those movies, I, th- I said this right after finishing it, it's like, it reminds you why movies. Like, it's just a immediate blast of style, ideas, mm-hmm. um, just everything that movies can be. It's not even mean this is the best movie ever made or anything, but it's like kind of the height of what movies can achieve for a movie that is... I won't even say relatively, like, utterly forgotten about pretty non-talked-about movie in most ways. Even in uh, uh, even in Haynes' own career, yeah, I feel like. Right. I mean, it, you know, because I think Carol, which I think is one of his best movies, represented a sort of, like, crystallization of legitimacy to some extent well, Also adapting like, queer uh, literature. Yeah. But, yeah. And, and having major yeah. performers that are, like, that are in that movie. Um... The movie we're going to talk about next, I'm not there. I feel like has the the Bob Dylan movie, so it's like got that identity about yeah. it. Um, and even Safe is like, oh, just this weird kind of AIDS allegory, or uh, even Far from Heaven is like, oh, it's a like a version of uh, you know a Douglas, uh, Sirk, Douglas Sirk or whatever. Yeah, and then that's just there. And you know, I, I've, of, this movie does have fans. But not nearly enough for one thing, and certainly I think it needs to be even better regarded in terms of his own work. I think and if it could, as somebody get. who really loves like Carol and um, even I'm not there, and certainly uh, Safe, I thought a lot about. It. I think this is his actually his best movie in terms of the sum total of what it yeah. is and what it's about it and the be, achievement yeah, of meaning and achievement of the performances and the style. And when it came out and what it means in terms of the contextualization of what it's about, I think it just is ultimately his best movie. Yeah. Uh, there are other movies I might like a little better, maybe, but in terms of just sheer achievement, I think overall, I think I keep the more I think about it, more I, I feel like this is the one. Uh, yeah. Because it feels like, oh, this is a big studio, kind of a big-ish studio movie, but it still feels like Poison and Safe, like versions of that where it's like, it still feels like it's kind of underground and weird and different, you know. Yeah. Um, We kind of mentioned it earlier, but it just as an example, it's really hard, I think, to depict... This is a random thing, but to depict musical performance on screen that is not a concert film. Yeah, right. You All see the that different ha- things shows in this feel distinct and feel yeah. different and feel right. like they all have a statement to yeah. make in the and narrative. I keep thinking about the... Because I feel like it's kind of the thing that's the, the emotional climax of the movie, and you mentioned it a little bit earlier, is the Kurt Wilde's, uh, Uma McGregor's version of Gimme Danger by the Stooges. At the towards the end of the movie, is just it's it, and it kind of becomes funny at a point because of him cursing and screaming, but like we had seen Ewan McGregor in some movies before that, like 
uh, train spotting, which is great. Isn't it wild, really by the way, movie. that a year after this, but, he's Obi Wan, young Obi Wan Kenobi in Episode yeah. One. This but is crazy. I feel like that and the whole movie, he's great. But that scene, I just keep thinking about. I've watched it a few times since we watched it again. Of just like, and all also it has to be put on top of this that he's playing basically Iggy Pop. Yeah. Iggy Pop, who is Iggy Pop. Yeah. Like, you know, crazy, insane, like, who knows what he's ever going to do. Like, his own institution of being, literally. And And for that scene to be just, like, so arresting and... They have so many different um, different emotional undercurrents. Yeah. Like that's just such an impressive achievement yeah. to make it seem like that. And I know it sounds very specific. Yeah. But like, it's just a so randomly out there, like stratospheric. Yeah. Uh. M- movie moment to me that that uh, that movie was I already loved throughout again, but was just like wow, this is yeah. something else. So that's ultimately the thing that should be said about the movie among everything else is just that, you know, that it's uh, just that it is, like I said, the way I said it at the time, it just reminds you of why movies are important and why movies are uh, can be so thrilling. Because the movie runs at like a million miles an hour the whole time. I mean, it's like, it doesn't stop. And there's no often. fat whatsoever. No, which no. is something Haynes is usually really good at in general. There's not a lot that you watch and you go, "This just doesn't need to be here." Yeah, uh, and even like something that I notice, and we'll talk about this with I'm not there also because there's a, the opening credits of that remind me of this idea. Is there's so many moments in this movie where he shut and and something he actually randomly a thing I've seen in multiple movies of his where he just shows shots of people staring at the screen. Mm-hmm. Like, almost like it's a tableau, like they've stopped, mm-hmm. and it's like we were living our lives, but now we know that you see us, and we, we, you see the people and the, the mass, you know, um, and there's a great, I think it has such a great random ending to the movie, is it just shows people in a bar somewhere, right? and then it the it just pans over, and there's a shot of, the, of a radio just sitting there playing whatever the last song was, some uh, Roxy Music song. And uh, then it's like, it all starts with, the movie starts with alien visitors <laughs> and ends with just people in a bar, just like, right. like that this music is part of their life, and it, but they've kind of moved on from it, and it's like, oh, that music that plays on the radio, the oldie station every so often, mm-hmm. you know, and just like, I think is, like you said, along with the Christian Bale kind of part of the story really says something, I think, about... uh what fandom is and what and again and what, I wonder what, what makes extent. up the whole of a celebrity are its fans ultimately and yeah and I feel know. like I wonder to what extent that that Arthur character was again Haynes trying to situate himself into that world yeah um I would apologize for getting emotional earlier, but no, at the same I time, I'm that, like, you know what? That, no, that yeah that, that really spoke to me yeah. this time seeing it. No, that's again, an emotional I movie think, yeah to again, I think to withhold that till the end. Obviously, Haynes knows what he's doing in terms of the journey of that character and how that for us is as close as we're ever going to get to that. And yeah. we all, you know, 
like we don't have we're like we're i mean we like glam rock fine enough you maybe even a little yeah, more than I me do, but but that's you know we don't have that relationship to glam rock but we all have that relationship to something whatever that yeah. is for you uh for us but and so to like you know that sort of wish fulfillment of you for a moment being acknowledged in that world and in that tradition yeah. is Again, I think what sneaks up on this movie is, for me, is this movie's as much about fandom as it is about musicians. Because there are a billion musician movies, and there's plenty of great ones, don't get me wrong. But that (laughs) being a component to this is what separates it from most i think right because it gives and us a chance to situate ourselves in well yeah and world. i and i will whatever say that, that world is for us right and i won't say that that world is the that what i'm about to say i'm not saying is my version yep. of that but that's another thing i was going to say about todd haynes earlier is that i had seen his movies before this and after this what i'm talking about but when i was in college that was when i went through these movies um you know and 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 I will always remember that time period of, wow, Todd Haynes and like going through his movies and feeling like, wow, these are just so great and about so many things. And like, like I'll always remember when I saw yeah. these movies for the first time and what that meant to me to see them. Yeah. Uh, like I still remember the day that the trailer for uh, uh, Rise of Skywalker came out. Mm-hmm. I was literally in the middle of watching Safe mm-hmm. when that happened. And I even tweeted about it at the mm-hmm. time. I said, who cares if about that when you're watching Todd Haynes' Safe for the first time? And I was already like, wow, this movie, you know. And, like, like I'll just always remember the things I was doing and what yeah. was going on. With. So that's, like, a version of this to where that's another reason why I think his newer output has been a little more of a letdown. Naturally, because those original, these original few movies, when I saw them, it hasn't been that long ago, but it was pre-COVID. So everything pre-COVID feels, like, immediately nostalgic. Um, but that that immediately feels they immediately feel lesser than when you're thinking about those yeah. movies I think you know naturally but yeah. I think what's mind blowing too is one of the earliest movies I saw from him was I'm Not There mm-hmm. and how that movie's every bit as weird as I remember it being yeah. but the joy I felt in his movies being there's more movies of his that are emotionally accessible to the extent to which again that movie's not interested in we're going to talk about here in a moment any other final thoughts on Bell Goldmine though Check it out. No, I, it. and it's a movie that most people, I'm sure, listening to this haven't seen, so I'd recommend highly going to see it. Yeah, uh, yeah it's it's great. Speaking of great, the great Bob Dylan, as depicted in 2007's I'm Not There. People are always talking about freedom. Freedom to live a certain way. Of course, the more you live a certain way, the less it feels like freedom. Me? I can change during the course of a day. I wake and I'm one person, and when I go to sleep, I know for certain I'm somebody else. You just want me to say what you want me to say. Once upon a time, you dressed so fine. Threw the bumps of dime in your prime. Then you 
me. All they want from me is finger point socks. I only got ten fingers. It's not about me anymore. It's all about him. That's nature's will, and I'm against nature. Could have swore you was an older man. Well, you used to be much older. <laughs> What's with all this? Doomsday, hocus pocus. Yes, chaos, clocks, watermelons, you know, it's, it's everything. I think least visually that trailer does a pretty good job of selling what the movie is you know it's obviously anytime you talk about this movie and you're talking to it with somebody who's maybe not seen it you're like okay so it's about bob dylan jack rollins the troubadour of conscience you know like (laughs) it's about bob dylan but are you would you describe yourself as a troubadour of conscience that's what i want to know uh on occasion when i'm okay i'm filling up to it but uh bob dylan of course played by how many is it? Five? Six. Six. Okay, six different... Just like there are six bullets in a gun, I guess. Yeah. You ever think true. about that? Because <laughs> I literally haven't until On that now. note, I'm Not There is a 2007 musical drama film directed by Todd Haynes and co-written by Haynes and Oren Moverman. I know I've heard that name. Oh, yeah, this guy, he's actually uh, wrote and directed some movies. Uh, the Messenger, Rampart, which was pretty good. I remember seeing that. Uh, that's like Woody Harrelson basically playing oh, yeah, this you, like, disgraced cop. You told me about yeah, that. It's a pretty yeah. old movie. Uh, an experimental biographical film, I'm Not There, is inspired by the life and music of American singer-songwriter Bob Dylan, with six actors depicting different facets of Dylan's public personas. Christian Bale, Kate Blanchett, Marcus Carl Franklin, Richard Gere, Heath Ledger, his final film to be released during his lifetime, and Ben Whishaw. A caption at the start of the film declares it to be, quote, Inspired by the music and the many lives of Bob Dylan. This is the only mention of Dylan in the film, apart from the song credits, and his only appearance in it is concert footage from 1966 shown during the film's final moments. Which feels a little tacked on, like, this is who it's all been about. Mm-hmm. Like, in yeah, case you didn't know. I know. Yeah. Real quick. Uh, also, this tells a story using non-traditional narrative techniques, intercutting the stories of seven different Dylan inspired characters. The title of the film is taken from the 1967 Dylan Basement Tapes uh, recording of I'm Not There, a song that has not been fully official, officially released until it appeared in the film's soundtrack album. So, yeah. Uh, we talked about this last time. This is 2007. This is one of the big film years. And yeah. when you say 2007, No Country for Old Men, There Will Be Blood, Michael Clayton, Zodiac all come to mind among many other great movies yeah i want to look at a, a, a group of them here but continue and yeah, I a, I, you know, atonement I, hot fuzz uh let's see the simpsons oh uh, the assassination <laughs> of jesse james yes, by the coward robert ford we own the night my winnipeg um secret sunshine that movie's good that's a, a lee shang dong mm-hmm. movie uh Halloween, the Rob Zombie Halloween. <laughs> Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, uh, three hundred. Last movie. Yeah, they get a, you know, Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, which mm-hmm. is a some disappointment. Um, but anyway, yeah. So I mean, that's 
I think, you know, everybody has that movie year of their lifetime. It's funny that 1999 is most people's go-to. For me, it's always been 2007, and I think for you as well. Mm-hmm. That also comes with uh, you especially, but me as well, Get really getting into movies. and. But I don't know. I feel like that's clearly a better year than 99 also. I mean, 99 is great, but I don't know. It just feels like there's a lot in 2007. And there's even movies that we didn't see, like In the Valley of Allah and... Uh, some other ones that we still haven't got to even over the years that, you know, are great. This was in the award mix uh, a little bit, mostly uh, around Kate Blanchett's performance, which we can talk about in a little bit. Uh, of course, she plays Bob Dylan as, you know, that, and that's notable, of course, her being a woman, yeah. portraying Dylan. And I feel like that's like, for most, even, you know, she won People, for that, right? No, saying, she was nominated. She, didn't, okay. she was nominated for Best Supporting Actress. Uh, Just quickly, a couple more 2007 films that I haven't seen, but I know you have. I think Juno, Into the Wild, um, Sunshine. Mm-hmm. Oh, A Trick or Treat. That's another one. American yep. Gangster, Eastern Promises, mm-hmm. uh, 310 to Yuma, another Christian Bale film. Gone yep. Baby Gone. Yep. Uh, the Grindhouse films, obviously, were that year. Um, Live Free or Die Hard. Spider-Man 3. <laughs> Spider-Man 3, yeah. I, I remember the movie I left that, that one out on not po- good, oh, you know. but it needs to be entered into the record, I believe. There was, it should be said, um, another movie that year that is kind of also like this, uh, that movie Control, about Ian Curtis of uh, Joy Division. Oh, yeah. Um, so I forgot that was that year. I haven't seen that, but Shooter. Norbit. Norbit. Even a and movie you know, like Norbit is like, obviously that's not good, but it's like it's in a wholly different film culture. I feel like than what we're yeah. living in now. We'll end it with two more. I think this is a good little, you know, ending is a uh, Beowulf. Terrible, terrible movie. Yeah. And uh, I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry. So, you know. <laughs> But anyway, uh, yeah, so obviously what we're getting at here is 2007 was a great year, and this is in the midst of all that somewhere. Um, I, this would, anyway, for me, oh. in a hypothetical list, be towards the bottom of a top ten. Yeah. Uh, because there are a lot of heavy hitter, unabashedly five-star movies. Yeah. This was a movie that years ago I held in that kind of regard-ish, and I still quite liked, but especially after coming off of Velvet Goldmine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was not quite as taken with. However, this movie has so many contexts and footnotes and references that it'll endlessly be fascinating uh, Fascinating to anyone who's the least bit interested in the life, career, music uh, influence of Bob Dylan, who, of course, is one of the titans of music. Yeah. Um, who is Bob Dylan, Levi? Who he is, is a man Bob who Dylan. he is a musician who makes music and is weird. So I guess this movie didn't need to happen then, really. Is what no, you're saying? I mean, well, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> but um, what do you think about? Well, let's just start here. What? Do, how did? How do you even begin to take in what this movie is attempting to do with Dylan's life and career via the lens of Todd? You know, normally, I feel like we should start at Bob Dylan, but I'm not going to do that because we're going to be here forever. You're. Mm-hmm. We're both Bob Dylan fans. You're an even bigger Bob. I mean, he's your favorite musician ever. And I, and I so, want to just say, I love him deeply. 
I'm a little hazy on anything like 1980s onward, not because I don't like it or I don't respect it. That's not why. I'm just yeah. not as familiar. Uh, obviously, it's a huge devotee of the 60s and 70s era culture in Even general. The, he was in that place. Like, <laughs> 70s era of, like, uh, you know, screaming Dylan. Like, <laughs> Yeah, so uh, I, I want to actually, I'm actually looking forward one day yeah. to going through that stuff more thoroughly. However, my Dylan love very strongly uh, is mostly centered in the 60s, 70s. Let me yeah. just say that. And that's kind of where the movie's mostly yeah. concerned with is those eras. It goes Anyways. as far as the uh, saved era of Dylan where he went Christian, like that whole thing. Yeah. And that it doesn't do anything after that. So anyways, we're fans of Bob Dylan. Obviously, our opinions of Dylan are going to come up throughout this discussion inherently. But being a movie about Bob Dylan, and again, I would imagine there's probably Dylan devotees who went into this disappointed, naturally. Uh, just because they wanted something a lot more straightforward. This is hardly anything uh, close to straightforward. I mean, it's very much one of the most different takes on any public figure. We had, uh, I mean, we're going to be jumping around in a lot of ways. I know one of the last things we wrote on the notes here was, can this be replicated? I've thought about it, and we kind of tossed out a name or two. I really don't think it can, just because the specificity of what this is is so wrapped up in him. In large part because he was one of the first kind of really big public figures who willingly changed his persona over time. I feel like Elvis is somebody that yeah, people can point that's to what and I was say, say, oh, he kind of changed over time, but that was kind of... That was way more one note. Uh, yeah, and also sometimes outside of Elvis's um, control, control yeah. especially through the 60s, like Dylan had a very tight control over who he was, the perception he had. Now, of course, some of that, naturally, when you open yourself up to other people, you're going to have people respond to your work in a way that you never initially planned, and he played off of that. But, I mean, he had a very strict control over who he is and the different versions of him that came out. And I think that this whole movie is only possible because of his nurturing of that mystique and that persona. Yeah. So, um... Yeah. Uh, that's because we wrote here, who is Bob Dylan? And how do you adapt and depict So, yeah, Dylan? going back to that question. Yeah. Uh, well, it's kind of tough when you already have somebody who came about in the midst of, I mean, obviously you have Don't Look Back, and uh, who's somebody who already came about in the midst of 1960s celebrity, um, yeah. kind of alongside uh, Andy Warhol and Velvet Underground, that idea of celebrity and being a celebrity through through being a musician and kind of that whole just there's he already was so outsized in his fame that there's kind of no point to depict him in its own way. Like I said, I mean, um, but there that's the thing about Dylan though is that. He is mysterious, don't get me wrong, but I don't know. As I've grown into listening to him over the years, I'm not re I don't find his mystique very interesting. I, I just not and that's not a criticism. I'm just saying that yeah, okay, well, he's well, just Well, maybe I would uh, if I maybe yeah. that's the wrong word, maybe to correct what you yeah. mean. Maybe it's just not as complicated no, as people right. make it out yeah, to be. Yeah, or maybe that's the what trajectory it is. Like, of his anybody career. who would write a song like Desolation Row 
I'm interested in what yeah. they what is in their mind. Like you know, but like it's just not maybe as complicated. No, as I just he's an artist like and like he's is. a poet and that's all it is. I mean, and that's another thing about this movie is that we can both probably agree that one of the worst things about it is the Ben Wishaw section is just like I don't know what this is. And there's very specific thoughts I have on that I'll say for later. But um that the whole poet side of Dylan, I think some people overblow as well. But at the same time, I think it, it was mostly because at that time, people didn't think of singing and songwriting as a serious art right. form. And he was someone who started to challenge that idea through his lyrics and through what his songs right. were about. Yeah. That, and so you know, similarly, uh, the difference between him and the Beatles in its own way, too, is that he kind of, both of them started as one thing and then wanted to become another. People adjusted a lot quicker to the Beatles doing that because they were so big. But it seemed to me that the Beatles started as, oh, we're just this pop group that people are real into. And then they actually started to have more interest, not so much interesting things to say as it was interesting ways to say it, I mm -hmm. guess. He also, was they so were in, they, they were in the, in the camera, in movies, like right. playing with their public persona mm. in an even more obvious yeah. direct way than Dylan right. was. Just because his is a little bit more of a, it was, I mean, it was popular, but it was naturally a little more of a cult or audience than what the, the, the visible hermit. Had. I mean, yeah, yeah. Right, and right. that's, that's a good way to put it. And I mean, yeah. he's been, and that everybody's tried to do that since then. I mean, it's very much like I'm going to say things that are very opaque and make you think about. It. I mean, there's a huge ego to that, uh, clearly. And part of that was and, he was almost parroting himself and right. parroting what people thought he was. Right. And he was kind of intentionally going into the. There is. You know, times I get frustrated seeing some of that footage of him going in circles for the sake of going in circles. Right. It's not to say anything. Yeah. It's just to confuse And as people. he got older, he did less of that. And then yeah. he just said things that were weird anyway. But without, uh, by revealing, he's just kind of a weird guy. Have you ever seen general, his, but, um, you know. I think it was in 2003, 4, his 60 Minutes interview that was no, done. I, I might actually so. post some clips of this at the end because it's very fascinating. Um, of him kind of talking about some of these ideas and, you know, one of the things, it was in the trailer of the Christian Bale uh, version of him, it's like, people won't, think, people won't finger, uh, finger pointing songs, and I only got ten fingers, you yeah. know, whatever he said. And he was talking about the idea in that 60 Minutes interview of, like, the idea that songs can change the world, and there was a time where he bought into that. Yeah. And then he kind of ends in this very opaque way, saying, yeah, I've been through all that. And there's like a dot 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 to it of lips. Well, there's like, even the section. Yeah, I, I got over the Kate Blanchett, Jude Quinn sequence. Kind of says him starting to think that way. Yeah. By that point, uh, but um, yeah, I mean, with him, what? Yeah, what I mean by all that is it's just not as complicated as people or as interesting in its complexity as people mm -hmm. make it out to be. I, but but what I was saying about Dylan is and, and the Beatles is that they started as like, oh, we're going to do this and then that. Everybody expected him, oh, you're the protest singer guy. And then, oh, well, maybe I just kind of want to write songs now. And people yeah. were like, what do you mean? And maybe I want to go electric and maybe I want to just make music. And that's what was always so interesting, I guess, about Dylan to me is that he wanted then he wanted to just be a storyteller and and make and just make great music and that's why not that I don't love that protest stuff but I really love in particular his like bringing it all back home uh highway and then highway 61 revisited is 
far and away my favorite Dylan album. Well, I've always it's, loved. It's in my top three. It would be and my uh, favorite's Blood on the Tracks, and that'd be one of them too. Year. But the, and then and then in that way later on in the 70s it felt like he wanted to make it kind of about himself or just you know more about my life and and you know so in that way he he saw a clear progression um and it does feel like he is different people and i felt like he felt that way too kind of like david lynch is an example someone who's an artist who wants to do multiple things yeah um, for him, he kind of always still wanted to be more of, I'm just going to make music, but he had different interests and different things he wanted to do. And I feel like that was very clear by the point of 64, 65, where he was like, nah, I'm in 66, where he's like, I want to just make music. I, I don't always want to protest all the time. Or him saying, why are you looking to me to do this when other people should be doing the same thing, you know. Um, and so in that way... That being said, I think it is genius to choose to do Dylan this way because of the different facets of him there are, especially from a genre perspective. And, and the folk music uh, pretty much takes itself from him and, and Joan Baez and, and uh, uh, what's the guy that was based on, uh, that they based Lewin Davis on. Uh, uh, Dave Van Ronk. Dave Van Ronk yeah. and all the Greenwich Village folk scene. But, like, also that being country music, blues, uh, you know, Irish and Scottish music, like, well, black part music. Of, part like, of it, too, uh, and know. I'm sure some people of that generation, I mean, there's hardly any of them around anymore, obviously, uh, would probably object to this classification. But part of that Greenwich Village beat that turned into that folk scene, like, there was a dose of irony in playing folk music seriously in the late 50s, early 60s mm-hmm. because of rock and roll, what that was in the 50s. That was obviously like the new thing. And to like, you know, no, we're going to go back and we're going to play like folk songs and like yeah. old Woody Guthrie protest songs. That was seen in a kind of a, ooh, like ironic lens in like the right. late 50s, early 60s. And they weren't using that term ironically in that exact way that we do now. But. That was part of it, and he comes from that tradition, and that's interesting that the the young black boy section of the movie, um, played by Marcus Carl Franklin, is very clearly like he's older. He he's older than he's got an old soul, you know, and that he's, but he's still singing songs yeah. about boxcars and whatnot. And there's that scene where he's like visiting that black other black family. And the mom of that family, or the, you know, the wife, kind of says something to him like, "You need to make songs about your time. Like, what you doing talking about like yeah. all these older times?" And that that was an aspect of right. Dylan that would mature, and he would do his own version of those folk songs in the world right. of the 50s, 60s, 70s. You know, but and that so that was, you know, that's one of the most head scratching aspects of the movie is the decision to do that. But as far as that section yeah. of the black child, but I do think it does, you know, it scratches that itch or that aspect of Dylan. And it should be said, I don't think really, you know, obviously this is probably goes without saying, I don't think any one of these represents like quote all of Dylan. They're yeah. all like, if you, you know, hypothetically cut him open, these are all, and it's not even these many, it'd be even more. Guess what? Like it would be with about anybody else, actually, in reality, because another thing about this movie is that it, um, you know, as you said, it, like, adds all these layers of complexity and these layers of depth, 
that honestly could be true of a great many people. It's just that Bob Dylan, of course, was a public figure. He was in a very um, explosive, artistically creative era and yeah. time. He's the most successful, mysterious person, like is, yeah. is what it comes down to, to the fact where that's why a movie like this is made is because he's so... I keep using the word weird, and I don't mean that as a pejorative either, but he's just a weird guy. He's just not your average musician in any contemporary or even person or famous person. He he says he talks weird, he thinks kinda weird, like he's just a different person to the point where it like I said, it, it begs the question of, oh, there's a lot more to this guy than meets the eye, and not that there isn't. Mm-hmm. And not that we shouldn't be interested in the mind who could write songs like that. Yeah. But at the same time, like you said, it's not any different than anybody else. Mm-hmm. I mean, but so yeah, that comes as a as a uh, a symptom of the time period. I think, and what a wicked time period it was. <laughs> you know, but yeah. But now that, let's go to the Todd Haynes yes, angle of yeah, all this. Right. Um, Why is the question? Well, well, and that's another thing I want to say yeah. is that. Like Dylan, I think we do Haynes a disservice to always obviously look at his films through that queer cinema lens. We need to think about, okay, he's interested in Bob Dylan, so he wants to do that. So maybe we shouldn't ask the question why, mm-hmm. but anyway, go on. Why, what do you what do you well, mean by that? Well, I was that? just going to say, you know, if you think about like the, the music-centric mu- movies Haynes yeah, has done, right. even after this, so if you look at uh, obviously Velvet Goldmine, uh, this... The Velvet Underground documentary, those the the beginning and end of that, like those are more velvet, velvet on both the, but yeah. they feel immediately yeah. like oh that would be maybe where Haynes's predilections would go. Approaching Bob Dylan is just an inherently more big, mainstream, intimidating. Thing. Yeah, I mean, he had to know that make, just making a movie about Bob Dylan doesn't matter how successful it was, how many theaters it played, was going to inherently engender more coverage, more interest, no matter how again successful it was. So, I think for him, it was probably, you know, trying to create something that was less a conventional narrative and more so just this tone poem of trying to reconcile how one person is all of these things in much the same way any one person is a collection of all sorts of things that are hardly visible to people on the outside. Which is kind of what Velvet Goldmine was in a certain way. Yeah. The the difference was that it was more interested in the people surrounding the person. So it was the external and this is more the internal Mm -hmm. um, meeting the external. And it's obviously, um, you know, there is... You know, I don't want to make this all about, as you said, Haynes's relationship to queerness, but inherently, like, if you're making the decision to, like, you know, have a woman play Bob in Dylan in the most visibly obvious Bob Dylan analog, yes. very clearly looks and talks yeah. like. And Bob I actually Dylan. saw a, a, an interview with him. I think it was done by the AFI where he was asked about that, and he said that. He was like, and not this wasn't necessarily the impetus of the whole movie, but it, with that particular section, he wanted to just like depict the just strange how strange Dylan looked visually during that time period, yeah. and how for so many of us, he's like encased in black and white in that yeah. time period, which of course that's what the movie depicts that section as, um, in a way that even like the 
like a few years before when you think of like uh the cover of the free will and bob dylan or you know like in color and like those first one and then all of a sudden like we jump a few years uh, later and all that black and white footage is so imprinted in our memories and even people who have not seen some of that themselves kind of have a shorthand of what that is and what that means and what that represents. I mean, even Walt Card, the Dewey Cox story, another great 2007 movie, by the way, I think we left off the list, uh, actually depicts, oh, Dewey Cox went through his era of this, you know, I think in a pretty funny way. I think it parries him pretty good. Um, You know, how do you take in, like, the Kate Blanchett playing Bob Dylan and making him a woman during part of this? Like, what? how do you, what do you... Well, I'm all right with that. Well, also, it's just because Kate Blanchett's great, so it's whatever. Uh, I mean, that's the first thing. I think it's great as a, uh, the, like you said, I mean, you look at Bob Dylan and, like, he he is kind of, in that era, does look kind of like an androgynous person. So, um, but as far as that section goes, I think what works about that in depicting that era of Dylan is that, Dylan at that crossroads of his life thinking, who am I? What do I want to do? Who do I want to be? Because it has the whole him going to uh, electric. And this movie, by the way, is heavy-handed in a lot of its imagery because yeah. there's that part where they turn and shoot the machine guns at the audience. like, And I'm like, it's just an electric guitar. It's not a machine and gun. And it stands you know out I mean? especially like, because but, like Haynes is not that heavy-handed of a filmmaker very right. often, and so that is a moment that really sticks There's out. There's another moment of that later that I wanted to bring up that is like that I think is both heavy-handed but also love and think is kind of stupid, but I'm like, I'm so glad this is in this, mm-hmm. is when there's the divorce papers yeah. being handed over, and it cuts to Henry Kissinger and Mal yeah, right. like or some other Chinese leaders signing the detente papers. And yeah. It's very like, what? Like, yeah. it's, so, it's so specific. Some of that, too, I think is also from stupid, the Vietnam but, War. And, right. that, whole, and that, that whole Heath Ledger section of the movie yeah. with Charlotte Gainsbourg, like, all of that is, you know, a depiction of an actor who played the Jack Rollins version of Dylan, which is the Christian Bale version. Yeah. Heath Ledger is an actor playing him in on screen and the length of in the arc of his relationship with this artist played by Charlotte yeah. Gainsbourg, and Vietnam being this background to all of that, right. which of course was something that uh, Dylan was opposed to and spoke about. But um, and that's a lot about his marriage yeah. uh, that kind of w- was more or less, I guess, written into uh, Blood on the mm-hmm. Tracks, uh, yeah. you know, famously. Um, but but anyways, yeah. that that's part of that whole anti-Vietnam right. yeah. section and part of that. So anyway, back to the the Jude Quinn section yeah. of the movie. Which, I mean, that's clearly kind of not that that section shouldn't exist, but it's kind of what the movie sold on in a lot of ways. Is, oh, yeah. this is the Dylan section. This yeah. is the real Bob Dylan. You know, blah blah blah. And that's the most famous because of Don't Look Back, and it looks a lot like the uh, D. A. Penny Baker. Uh, you know, obviously it's not like cinema verite like that was, but it looks like that sort of, and so it's the most. Well, that's like clearly that. the like the guiding uh, primary right. source. That's all. Drawing and so, from. and also him being in London and kind of being in England in general, and thinking, you know, what is uh, Bob Dylan to that, and then having the Beatles there, and and so all that's just say. I think that section actually is is really good because it's kind of the high wire act of the whole thing and it's like how are we going to actually yeah. do this part 
because all the rest can kind of come and go, and it feels like the movie really that and the Heath Ledger section are really like what the movie's really resting itself on, and the rest kind of comes and goes. Don't you feel like the Christian Bale section is there? primarily for two reasons one to serve simply as the inspiration for what the heath ledger character does yeah and two to like show to be the, a troubadour of conscience yeah the dylan who like recedes and then comes back right. in the late 70s as this gospel inspired right. more of like christiany yeah bob dylan uh, and i don't know if the bell section totally works on its own terms as opposed to just serving as this yeah uh, bookends to the, those right. ends, you know. Yeah, I think so. Uh, there's also one of the, to me the, the most perplexing stuff about the movie is the Richard Gear. Um, yeah, character. You, stuff. you want to know what I think of why yeah, that's please. there? Yeah, because I because I've wondered about that myself. But it's just trying to do the, like uh, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, which he was in. So random, but I think part of that is like the very and this is a very Neil Young kind of thing too. But like the the. Uh, the well, also similarly, as you said earlier, tying to that folk and uh, you know, American, even West like music and kind of what that was, but also just this very like because it talks a lot about all oh, the unions and this and that, and like that kind of farmer side to Dylan and the like, the even though he wasn't one, yeah. uh, but uh, and that whole more like. And even John Cougar Mellencamp version of that too. The romanticization, the romanticization yeah. of like the pastoral life, and kind of I think that's that section of the movie is that. But it's also just a way to be like, oh, remember when he was in Pat Garrett and Millie Kid? It's like, yeah. Mm-hmm. So like, I mean, beans. do you think it's just like, to like have another like another oh, by, played by Richard Gere right, like yeah. aspect? And there's not as much to that one, and also there's literally cars in it. So I'm not really sure what. There's going also on there. Bruce Greenwood who plays like one of the few figures or characters who occur, reoccurs yeah. in the different parts because he's kind of this oppositional piece to the Jude Quinn section of this journalist who kind of Mr. Jones, one of the most annoying Bob Dylan songs, <laughs> by the way, is trying to see through that version of Dylan and then it's kind of challenging. But from my that. favorite album of his, so what does that mean? Yeah. And then like, and then he reappears in like the Richard Gere sections as kind of a villain character or top um and to that point like all this told and all this combined like what is the narrative ends of this movie to you there isn't any other than literally examining that oh another thing i was gonna say to kind of go back the john wesley harding era of dylan i feel like it's trying to adapt that Mm -hmm. also yeah as far as that uh the story songs that he wrote a lot of those you know uh, as the Richard Gear stuff, yeah. As far as that, I don't really think there's much of a narrative other than to just say let's try to examine Bob Dylan. I mean, it's very academic. Like, mm-hmm. um, I mean, because that's how I would describe the emotionality of the movie. In a lot of ways, feels very much like that, like the Woody Guthrie stuff. Like when when the Woody character goes and finds Woody Guthrie dying, and he sits there and cries, and that that feels like it's trying to be emotional, but it's a very academic emotionality. It's like trying to explain, oh, it's a little black boy that's crying about the death of Woody Guthrie. Like that's so mm-hmm. uh, essayistic and specific. It's a, like that doesn't connect to me like something like Velvet Goldmine would, you know. Like I understand it on a conceptual level, you yeah. know, but it's like, but I don't. But that's what I'm saying. So like. There's that disconnect between the genuine emotionality 
of that you'd have in a regular narrative and like these bits and pieces of it sped spread throughout um i feel like as we've said the most uh connecting version of that is the uh heath ledger stuff i feel like mostly works yeah um and is really good and charlotte gainsburg she's really good in anything she's yeah. in she is asked to do so much in the uh nymphomaniac movies that it's like i already know Lars Von Trier's her. Work in general, yeah. but um and well yeah and also she was in uh, antichrist too i forgot but also in melancholy oh is she in that okay. yeah uh, but so, so what that, does that mean? This movie adds up to is it almost like a cinematic mixtape? That, that's ultimately what it is, and I think that's why a lot of people would. I mean, it's one of those things like it's just going to confuse a lot of people. But especially this time watching it, it, it was tougher to get into its wavelength based yeah. on having seen Velvet Goldmine, which accomplished everything it wanted to do, but actually about more things. Mm -hmm. Um, This did feel like it's like him trying to wrestle with just the question of who is this person, and it kind of becomes that. And that's mostly fine, because you don't normally get movies like that. It's just in relation to some of his other stuff, it doesn't work quite as well as a whole as it does in bits and pieces, I think. Uh Um, And I mean it tries to like link these things because like there's the there's this weird try to be this connection between the like into the Dylanverse the the <laughs> the like Woody stuff and the Richard Gere stuff because it keeps showing stuff about the trains and yeah the, right and the guitar and the machine this machine kills fascist uh, yeah. case and it's like it's trying to do something there but I don't know what it is it's like yeah, not yeah. it's not connecting so like mm-hmm. and I don't even know that he necessarily needs it to either mm-hmm. uh and then there's the section of Bob Dylan on the motorcycle, which is like nobody in yeah. it. It feels very like, oh, remember when he had this motorcycle accident? Like I said, it's all very like essay, essay, this thing, that thing. And it's like, okay, but like... I feel like another filmmaker might have even used the motorcycle wreck, which occurred in the mid-60s, yeah. as kind of like the a break portal right. into these yeah. other And versions. I'm glad he didn't do that, yeah. but it feels like... Okay, that's kind of there. Why is this here? Like, is that supposed to be the Ben Wishaw stuff? Like, who's that supposed to be? I don't know. Yeah. Speaking of that, that's another thing I want to mention is that he has the name Arthur Rimbaud, who is literally one of like Todd Haynes' go-to interests. The writer who's a yeah. big uh, queer literature, uh, you know, titan that he adapted a good amount of stuff in Poison from. I think as far as that one section of it, anyway where they're in the prison, yeah. that stuff, I think, is more of the Rimbaud stuff. It's also important to note that Verlaine, who was like Rimbaud's uh, basically partner of sorts, would inspire the name, the stage name of Tom Verlaine of television. Uh-huh. So clearly that, like, Arthur Rimbaud stuff is, like, uh, all in that music, you know, uh, interest. Patti Smith, I think, is also very interested in that. Mm-hmm. Coincidentally, I'm not very interested in Patty Smith, but you know, whatever. <laughs> um, but that that section's trying to do the oh, I'm a poet thing, and like, 
all of those are these like very vague platitudes that are very annoying to watch yeah. for me. I don't know. There's something about that section that really gets under my skin, makes me kind of aggravated. I don't know what it is because I actually like Ben Wishaw. Well, I think usually. too because even all these other ones, for all their opaqueness, have their own mini narratives yes. in this and larger story. And that's like story. he's doing this deposition to who. It almost still and why. feels like a theater monologue. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's not and really. I don't a, get that a story there. And they put some of. Uh, his stuff out of his book tarantula in yeah. there uh you know and um but yeah it's just there's sections there that are just kind of like okay i'm not really i don't get this but mm-hmm. uh, i but and that's fine it doesn't really matter um but yeah it doesn't always work in that I way we would, will, we, will we agree that um our favorite section is the Heath Ledger, Charlotte yeah. Gainsbourg stuff. Yeah. Which, to me, the first time was not really the scenes I really cared for all that much. But I think, you know, Luca Guadagnino, I've actually heard, and we haven't talked about this in a while, I don't think, has talked about adapting the album of um, Blood, on the, Blood on the Tracks. And after seeing this again, I was like, oh, I bet it would be something like yeah, this, of this right. story like this that uses all that music, that album, in the movie. Um, and almost acts like a visual album. Right. But I think this kind of beat it to the punch if that's what he was going to yeah. do. And I imagine it would be a version of that. Right. Uh, because, and also just like, not like visually the way he looks in there looks like the mid-70s Dylan, like uh, in particular yeah. with the sunglasses and everything. Uh, Heath Ledger section. So, um and Heath Ledger too. I mean, it's almost to the point of being overstated sometimes. But when you watch him in Brokeback Mountain, and of course in The Dark Knight, and in this, he really was like, if we, you know, it's so tragic what happened to him because he really could have been one of. I our was great driving actors. home earlier thinking about him and in in those two movies and just and how good he is. Too, yeah. yeah, now I haven't seen that yeah. yet. I should say. It's probably actually also, his Michelle Williams is in this as Coco Rivington, yeah. which is a name I keep thinking about. Yeah. Uh, whatever that whole character is. It definitely looks um, like some 60s ingenue yeah, type, yeah. you know, basically. Yeah, entrepreneur. Yeah. Festive mitten. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, yeah, that, I think, is the section that wins the movie, and it's partly just because he is that good in it, and it's kind of like, yeah, it is partly that, I mm-hmm. think, as well. So we would agree, then, the ledger section's at the top. Yeah. Number one. If you had to, we're going to kind of, rank these in a roundabout yeah. way, which is probably would make Todd Haynes shake his head and say, that wasn't the point. But And I get it, but anyways. Yeah. Number two for you, Levi. Mine would probably be the Kate Blanchett, Jim yep. Quinn section. I think that's pretty clearly... I would agree with that. ...really good. After that would probably be the Christian Bale stuff. We didn't really talk about uh, Julianne Moore in this. No, she's the... Yeah, so back to what we were talking about earlier, the news magazine section of this. Yeah. Is this kind of documentary of them going and uh, interviewing people? She's kind of a Joan Baez uh, basically. analog, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, funny enough, it also has that guy uh, who was in Safe and was recently on uh, Succession. Uh, oh. I can't remember that guy's yeah, name. I know you're talking about. Uh, and I don't think he's listed he's on He's just here. one of the corporate bozos in succession. Yeah, but he, and he's like, plays two characters actually. He plays one in that section and then one in the, uh, the Billy the Kid stuff. But anyway, uh, so that's probably mine, you know. Mm-hmm, I would agree with uh, that. 
And then, let's see, as far as with that. And then from there, it's all like kind of just, you know, whatever. It, I probably put the Richard Gere stuff uh, fourth, and then probably the Marcus Carl Franklin Woody stuff, yeah. and then last is the Ben Wishaw stuff. I think and, I would agree with that exact order. Yeah, myself. the Ben Wishaw stuff, I mean, even to defend it slightly, there's just not a whole lot there, so it's kind of just like... Well, like we you said, know, you know, all of them have a little mini narrative, and that one just is this extemporaneous like, monologue. That one was basically a long version of the title card. I'm not there because there was nothing there at all. Basically. <laughs> um, I, mean, I mean, how many critics were like, I'm not there, and there's not much of a movie here either, you know, yeah, just like right. using the title to dunk on yeah. it. But. Um... But yeah, no, also, well, yeah. go ahead. I was no, going to say, ahead. lastly, we were going to yeah. kind of talk about the music, the use of Dylan's music in the movie. It seems like it, you know, loosely tries to follow, like, whatever era it's in, that era of Dylan's music. What were your takeaways from how it was utilized throughout the movie? Of, of I'm sorry, which section? Uh, Just uh, any of the sections. Oh, any? Yeah. Or, uh, repeat the question then. I'm sorry, I, I blanked out there for that. Uh, like, you know, loosely speaking, the movie tries to like use the music that it's it. You know, oh, oh it's inspired the, by right. from okay, so, different eras. Well, obviously, so well, I, I was going to ask your opinion on that too because uh, you're an even more of an expert than me. Now they had that "I'm Not There" soundtrack, which had a lot of people actually do covers, covers, and these. I mean, these are some big names here. I'm gonna go through them so. Eddie Vedder did one for All Along the Watchtower. Yeah. Sonic Youth did one for that, for the I'm Not There song. Yeah. Uh, Jim James and Calexico did one of going to Acapulco. I like Calexico. They're good. Yeah. Tombstone Blues, which is played in the movie. Richie Havens, who's in the movie, also uh, did that. Bout of a Thin Man. They got Steve Malkmus from uh, Pavement to do that. Mm hmm. Uh,. Cat Power did a cover of Stuck Inside of Mobile with the Memphis Blues again. John Doe of uh, X, he did one for Pressing On. Yola Tango and Buckwheat Zedeco. Well, <laughs> uh, did one for Fourth Time Around. Iron and Wine and Calexico did one. Roger McGuinn, who was in The Birds, he did one more cup of coffee. There's that one uh, that Mason Jennings did of Lonesome Death of Hattie McCarroll that's really, or Hattie yeah. Carroll that's really good. Yeah, I like that version a lot. Uh, that band Los Lobos did one. Jeff Tweedy did one of Simple Twist of Fate. Uh, Mark Lanigan, who was in uh, that band the Screaming Trees, and then he was also in Queens of the Stone Age. He did one, and then uh, Willie Nelson. Oh, God, there's even more. Oh, Lord. We'll go through this quick. I'm just going to name people here. Uh, Tom Verlaine, who I mentioned earlier, The Black Keys, Another Yola Tango, Sufjan Stevens, Charlotte Gainsbourg did one, More Calexico, Lee Ronaldo and Steve Malkamus did one together, uh, Jack Johnson, uh, there's a vert, and then there was the I'm Not There by Bob Dylan and the band mm -hmm. for the, they made. So yeah, a lot of, that is almost its own other whole Sound project. Yeah. Um, but as far as I actually feel I'm kind of impressed by this movie's use of Dylan music 
because it actually doesn't really do a lot of the stuff you'd think. I wouldn't say it's exactly deep cuts, but it's just more yeah. like random stuff. Right. Um, like, thankfully, there's not like like a Rolling Stone isn't in it, or like uh, well, it's over the credits at the very end, wasn't it? Oh yeah, but I mean yeah, like not in the movie, right? But not like there's not a moment in the movie that's like that part of right. it, you know. Uh, now I was actually watching this quite impressed with even when it straight up used Dylan songs, it wasn't like too obvious or like it was like pretty random stuff. It felt like more inspired choices. Yeah, and again, I like that there's a lot of covers in here and that that yeah. spoke to the multiplicity nature of what this project is too. Yeah. Of people inspired by and doing their versions of Dylan songs. I thought that was a, a obviously a good right. choice. And that's also with that, as you heard, a lot of random, you know, of the alternative rock people that he likes, like, like I said, John Doe and, and Sonic Youth and Pavement and all those, you know, kind of bands that are newer. Yeah. Kind of linking that to that also is kind of a metatextual thing, I guess. Um, but, uh, but I do want to say, I really... Uh, Going back to Velvet Goldmine briefly, mm-hmm. it's very obvious, but I really love the, because uh, I love the song anyway, it's one of my favorite songs, Virginia Plain by Roxy Music, Yeah, uh, I listen to just all the time, great song. It's like one of that's proof that there can really be a great like two minute song, two minute, thir- two minute and three second song, whatever. Yeah. But in that, it's like a very basic, like, oh, living the big life kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But then it's like randomly, then it's playing over this, like, oh, we got this lady to come in and be our, like, uh, uh, fashion designer or something. And they're walking her through. And the that song famously ends with, what's her name, Virginia Plain? And then it just stops. And yeah. he's like, oh, what's your name? And then it does that. And it literally stops. And then she's like, Pam or something. Yeah. It's just like, so randomly funny of a way to like put that song in there and then yeah. have that like I I feel like that so like I said there are moments like that where he can be very obvious I feel like this movie he did it a little too heavy on certain things not even with music exactly just like with different stuff mm-hmm. um but that he always does random stuff like that that's always more interesting I think than it should be mm-hmm. uh I'm trying to think because, honestly, a lot of the songs that were used that were original Dylan versions were more random songs that I don't listen to a Mm. lot. And, like, I've heard them, but, like, I don't remember their names. Well, there's just so many, too. Right. Um, But, I mean, when you have songs like Subterranean Homesick Blues, I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) I I don't remember, like, what these are. Um but yeah, I think it actually, that's one of the better things about the movie is its use of the Dylan music is very uh, particular, not real obvious or like stupid, you know. I mean, like, there's the parts of like him playing Times Hour Changing of, you know, but yeah. you kind of have to use that in the like protest section. Yeah, right. Um, and so there's stuff like that where it serves the purpose, but then other times where it's like, oh, okay, this is actually kind of interesting, mm-hmm. a different way to do it. Are there any blood on the track songs in this? I didn't really catch any. Simple twist of fate was uh, it is one. Okay, I didn't remember uh, if it was or not. I mean, I know there were some on the list. I'm saying in the movie, I couldn't remember if there was a, any point where there was. Yeah, any. there's so much music I can't quite remember all the um, 
Well, let me just go to the track listings of Blood on the Tracks real quick. Tangled Up in Blue. No, well, I don't remember that in there. No. Simple, Simple Twist of Fate, You're a Big Girl Now, Idiot Wind. That was in there somewhere, wasn't it? Well, Idiot, Idiot Wind. Wind. Yeah, it was. That, I yeah. remember now. That was in... I don't remember where that was, but yeah, that was in there somewhere. You Gotta Make Me Lonesome When You Go, Meet Me in the Morning, Little Rosemary and Jack of Hearts, and the Jack of Hearts. If You See Her, Say Hello, Shelter from the Storm, and Buckets of Rain. You know a song that I, I was listening to that album actually last week at school after we had watched this movie, because uh, I was thinking about it, Blood on Tracks, and uh, there's that, that You're a Big Girl Now, and that song, there's that... Those parts are like, yeah. like, you know, <laughs> yeah. Which I mean, I don't even remember the exact words, but it was very <laughs> that him on a crotch rocket, <laughs> like you know. Uh, but yeah, I was playing that uh, actually when we had that uh, two-hour delay day. Yeah, right. When the kids were coming in and we were all just kind of looking at each other and they were like, "What is this?" You can tell they never you know heard it and mm-hmm. they were like, "Okay," but. But yeah, all in all, I think it's a good use of music for this. And like I said, the the addition of the whole uh, soundtrack album is is cool to go along with that. But I feel like I've listened to parts of that before, but maybe not the whole thing. I need to do that at some point. Do you think the sheer amount of documentary, not only footage, but also documentaries themselves, combined with what Dylan adaptations exist, almost make adapting Dylan moving forward almost moot? Yeah. Experience. Well, and there was, and I haven't seen it, but I know there's that. Uh, there's the No Direction Home documentary. That's a, which, that's great. I which I, that. I'd like that's to see that at some point. Yeah. Uh, that's basically then, of his life up to the motorcycle crash. Right. And then there's the obviously uh, Rolling Thunder review, which I love is great. That, yeah. yeah. Um, and that was about a, a part of Dylan's life I was not really aware of at the time. Yeah. When I saw it, um, and because uh, I'm more of that, like up until. Basically, up until the band was the mm-hmm. band, right. you know, it's like it kind of after that, I'm kind of like, I don't know as much about it. Uh, really, up until like I, I don't I haven't heard much of like Planet Waves or like mm-hmm. uh, Self Portrait that kind of stuff. I haven't heard like I honestly jump from like John Wesley Harding to uh, Blood on the Tracks usually, and I'm not really as no, aware it's funny, of that it's stuff. The first in the time middle. I heard Self Portrait, I'm here like wow. This is really great, and then went <laughs> and looked. And they were like, like, "Oh my god, this yeah. sucks!" I, I was like, hated it. Nineteen seventy, like, yeah, think. right. Yeah. I think it was sixty-nine, seventy, something like that. Yeah, but it was this sucks, and people hated yeah. it. And I was <laughs> like, "Oh, okay." Well, they kind of said that with you know a little bit with some of his best stuff. They're bringing it all back home and uh, uh, Highway sixty-one revisited. But, right. I mean, how could you be mad at a at a song like Highway sixty-one revisited when it literally starts with like a slide whistle, like? somebody slipping on something right like yeah you know i don't know that's a good you know question. eventual knowledge uh those who will be knowledgeable about the home alone uh, yeah. <laughs> our home alone show the that we have planned yeah fan fiction will know all about the highway 61 revisited inclusion um any last thoughts about i'm not there no it's good but it it, it, it after i think it's tough to follow velvet goldmine that's just like Wow. Well, obviously, he know. made movies in between that, but yes. for us, like, no, I'm we'll saying like right after, this. yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, I mean, and like I said, it's just so much context, and you feel like Velvet Goldmine's so much context, but then it's, just, but it just functions as a narrative, I mean, like, you know. I think you know, most and, people could probably watch that and still, and go, oh, yeah, I like, mean, they might be turned off by 1970s rock and roll music, okay, I, yeah. I get that, like, yeah. 
you know. Uh, this is way more specific even than that is. Yeah. So, uh, and again, we said several times throughout, we're really big. I was a really massive fan of the Velvet Underground documentary he did, which, um, what's your favorite Bob Dylan impression in this movie? Like, where's the moment where you feel like, oh yeah, they did it? And usually it's the Jude Quinn stuff, I'm sure, but. Well, I said it earlier, like that that one Christian Bale moment yeah. where he's like, uh, "When we do all the finger pointing songs, I only got ten fingers." You know, yeah, I, I thought that was right. pretty funny. But I do like the part where they're like, uh, "He's like," it's a, towards the beginning where Jack Rollins is like on the stage and oh he's doing yeah, the whole yeah. like sitting things like, uh, well, uh, yeah, like, you know, and I don't know, like, yeah. well, what do you know? You know, <laughs> like, let us know uh, when you know. Um. That's there. There is some really good Kate Blanchett stuff. Of I mean, it's that scene that we uh, used last week, but kind of the uh, press conference section. There's a lot of funny stuff in there. Like <laughs> I've thought a lot about. It. I was like, are you trying to like you know uh, push your own beliefs or something? And she's like, no. <laughs> like very disinterested in the question. Like, yeah. No. I don't care, like whatever, uh, because the other ones are pretty their own thing, you know. They don't really have that accent. Yeah, the Ben Wishaw stuff is very like eye roll worthy version of Dylan, like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I mean, we are we're our own favorite impressionist of Dylan. I must say, <laughs> James Austin Johnson, who's pretty yeah, great in he general, he's one. got the best. I feel yeah. like you know, he's just a great impressionist. That? Sending sending uh, memes about Levon Helm to Buddy Holly's ghost. Oh, like, that's on his Instagram, <laughs> yeah. private Instagram, not right. even on what he did on right. SNL yeah. or not SNL, but Fallon. I think it was. But, yeah, yeah, hilarious. Yeah, the, but sending memes of <laughs> Levon Helm to Buddy Holly's ghost. That's the most specific. <laughs> thing here it's like you know what one of my favorite bob dylan things ever is actually is that he had that like radio show he used to do i think he kind of still does it or something he has like a radio show somewhere okay that he does and uh he was talking about batman on it you know i've showed you that before. oh yeah. he's like uh, batman appeared in detective comics number 39 or number, number 27 yeah. in 1939 or whatever <laughs> and he's like uh uh it I can never be super. I always like Batman. I can never be Superman, but I can always be Batman. Like, <laughs> <laughs> just so random. Imagine back like, in the day, like him at some party, people walking around talking, smoking, doing all yeah. Lord knows what, and he just sits down, like he's watching Batman and on the in the on TV in the sixties, oh, yeah, like right. hearing his audio commentary. What he's that like, would have oh, been? They get the Joker on then. Yeah. Like, I'm the. I will one day be the Joker man. Yeah, like. like Maybe okay. that's his attempt to be Batman, is to be the Joker Man. The, 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 the Jack of Highs, or whatever that song is. I don't really like that song, actually. That's not one of my more favorite. I, I like it's fine like, enough, but... It's like way too fast. Yeah. yeah Jack of Highs. <laughs> like, stop. Like, uh, well, I know we anyway. said this last time, but I want to reread what he said about <laughs> yeah, this movie, because so like, it's like... It's like... like Let's see. All right, so... Um, in September 2012, Dylan commented on I'm Not There in an interview published. Well, it took him that long, Stone. too. But we said that last time, but it took him like five years to get with it. Like, when journalist yeah. Mikhail Gilmore asked Dylan whether he liked the film, he responded, quote, Yeah, I thought it was all right. Do you think the director was worried that people would understand it or not? 
I don't think he cared one bit. <laughs> I just think he wanted to make a good movie. I thought it looked good, and those actors were incredible. That's so. one thing. Before we move on, this movie looks amazing. Yeah, yeah. I know that's like really great, high quality. I know black that's and white. something that like could get it gets lost in the midst of everything. I think this for me, about, that's still why I rate it as highly as I do, yeah. is because. Not only the visuals, but like all the parts do not all exactly cohere, but just individually, it's like yeah. all really well right. done, you know. Yeah, I would say. And they have their own visual palettes to themselves, yeah. too. I mean, they all look kind of different. Uh, and I really yeah. especially like the way the black and white looked in what looks like the factory section, the Andy Warhol esque oh, yeah. section. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Queen. I mean, it yeah, looks where like, it's like the tarantula on the wall and all that. Yeah, yeah I, I yeah. really like all that a lot yeah. in this. The Coco Rivington appearance. <laughs> I mean, I think it's crazy. Michelle Williams in this movie, and all we've done is just laugh about her character name. Yeah, well, she's generally a, such an amazing That's actress, what I'm saying. She's like, just barely yeah, in right, this. Right, so, and it's whatever, but yeah, it's, it's like. falls to the cracks. Yeah, whatever. I don't know. That's it. I guess that's, that's the it. movie. That's um, we're here. Go we're home. still here. Go I don't home. know if you are. Go home, ET. Phone home. <laughs> ET. Would, I could always be ET. Right? <laughs> <laughs> no, him watching ET. Is what yeah, I now that hear. would be something. Yeah, that's got to do like, it. He's like, oh, I like that Quiet Man movie. <laughs> or uh, was that no, not the Quiet Man. Uh, what was that movie? Uh, uh, was, uh, it was it the Quiet Man? Quiet man I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think yeah, it, it is. is. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking of uh, the the. What's that? What's the book that? Uh, Quiet American. The Quiet the Graham American. Green okay, Graham yeah. Green. I was thinking, yeah, the Quiet Man. Quiet Man. Uh, what? Uh, what's? Even he's uh, drinking them beers. Uh, ouch! Like yeah, that uh, aliens going ouch. Drinking <laughs> them beers. Yeah, drinking that beer. <laughs> creating them Reese's pieces for this for this film. I wonder right. how many times like Bob Dylan's met random people and they try to do an impression. And of he's just like. <laughs> <laughs> that reminds me of like you know to a certain generation of like. This is really random, but like person on Twitter, Bob Dylan yeah. is considered like the coolest person ever. Right. And I, I would kind of be in a category of yeah. that. But there's that one image that circulates all the time of just him standing in a convenience store with a cowboy hat on, yeah. reading like a baseball magazine yeah, or right. something. He's just like reading it. <laughs> and it's like, and it's like the caption always reads something along the lines of like Bob Dylan in an empty convenience store reading a baseball magazine. It doesn't mean anything. It means everything. Yeah. It's like, like, <laughs> well, that's another thing I was going to say. I think on that radio show, he talks a lot about baseball or something, too. So yep. he's a baseball fan, I guess. I don't know. I guess, I guess he'd be, yeah. I don't know if he'd be in the Twins. Minnesota Twins. He Both. thought she was my twins. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyway, that does it for this episode of Overlapping Dialogue. We've laughed. We've cried. My favorite movie is Twins. We like, did mediocre Bob Dylan impressions. Yeah. I don't think they're mediocre. I don't. I think they're fine. I think they're all right. But I think they're, actually, I think they're the best ever. Now, let's talk about somebody who did an impression of a filmmaker. I'm just kidding. Yeah. Uh, Jeff, what have we got next week? Stay tuned for scenes from our next episode. C'est après le roman d'Alberto Moravia. Il y a Brigitte Bardot et Michel Piccoli. Il y a aussi Jacques Palance et Georges Lamoll. Et Fritz Lang. Les prises de vue sont de Raoul Coutard. 
Georges Delerue a écrit la musique. Et le son a été enregistré par William Sivet. Le montage est d'Agnès Guillemot. Philippe Dussard s'est occupé de la régie avec Carlo Lastricati. C'est un film de Jean-Luc Godard. Il est tourné en scope et tiré en couleur par GTC à Joinville. Il a été produit par Georges de Beauregard et Carlo Ponti pour les sociétés Rome Paris Film, Concordia, Compagnia Cinématographique à Champion à Rome. Le cinéma, disait André Bazin, substitue à notre regard un monde qui s'accorde à nos désirs. et l'histoire de ce monde. Il y aura qu'à s'arrêter n'importe où. Mais qu'est-ce qu'on fait toute la journée Non, il faut d'abord trouver mon frère. Il lui donnera plein de fric. Et ensuite, on se trouvera un chouette hôtel chic et on rigolera. Vous voyez, elle pense qu'à rigoler. À qui tu parles Au spectateur. Tu vois, je te l'avais dit. Je le regrette déjà. Tu es fou d'avoir fait ça. Non, je suis amoureux. C'est la même chose. Moi, j'ai décidé de ne plus jamais tomber amoureuse. Je trouve ça dégoûtant. Allez, dis pas ça. Allez, dis pas ça. Il y a deux minutes, je voyais la mort partout, maintenant c'est le contraire. Regarde. La mer, les vagues, le ciel. Ah, la vie est peut-être triste, mais elle est toujours belle. Tout à coup, je me sens libre. On peut faire ce qu'on veut quand on veut. Regarde. À droite, à gauche, à gauche, à droite. À gauche. Oh, le petit con, le petit con, il roule sur une ligne droite. Il est parfait de la suivre jusqu'au bout. Hein? Regarde. Chapitre 8 Une saison en enfer. L'amour est à réinventer. La vraie vie est ailleurs. Des siècles et des siècles s'enfuirent dans le lointain comme des orages. Je la tins contre moi et je me mis à pleurer. C'était le premier. C'était le seul rêve. Now, if you know, Jean-Luc Godard, he is all, like, he is all filmmaker, like somebody said. He is all man in the bedroom. Right? <laughs> well, Ooh. I don't know. I, can't I don't want to know about that. Uh... You know, we were talking about Altman earlier in terms of his body of work yeah. in the 70s. I'm going to read you all the titles of uh, Godard's Godard 60s movies film. just from the 60s. Yeah. Just the 60s. This ain't even, if you actually go to his web page, that ain't even every movie. Yeah, this made. is uh, yeah. through his whole career, even. Right. Yeah. So from 60 to 69, Breathless. That's his first movie, by the way, which, you know, everybody talks about. But, right. You know. A woman is a woman. My love to my life to live. The little soldier. The ca, uh, carabin, carabiners. 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 Contempt. Band of outsiders. A married woman. Alphaville. Pierre Lefou. Masculine, feminine. 
Made in USA. Two or three things I know about her. Uh, La Chinoise Weekend and Joy of Learning. Wow. Slow down. Okay? Yeah. Uh, now, obviously, unless you speak French, uh, or the two movies that we just played clips of are Content from 1963 and Pierre LeFou from 1965. Now, those are the French release dates. I'm not sure exactly what America's release dates were, the extent to which it showed here. Uh it's probably just a lot. Now we talked about Bleecker Street, and that was it. Yeah, we talked less. about Godar after his passing, which I think was in 2022. Now it's yeah. been, yeah, um, because I remember I had known those kids pretty well by then, but the kids I even still have a lot of now. When he died, I showed them some scenes from Weekend. Don't worry, not those <laughs> scenes, because that movie, Dagum, I had to cut around that thing like Dagum scissors. Yeah. Um, that the scenes of uh, the 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 car the car uh, jam the traffic jam stuff right. I showed them because I was like I'll just show you some of that <laughs> they were so pissed off oh, well, never, good. yeah, yeah that's, like, that's many words well yeah but like <laughs> I remember I remember one in particular he was tradition. like how is this influential what is this he was like so mad because he kept going on and on and on you know <laughs> I was just laughing like but I think you know to go back to that with these movies in particular. You've always said this about Godard, and I think it's true. And I'll say even another thing about this, too, is that his movies really do... He is obsessed with, and I think his movies are most evocative by, the car crash. Like, what is the car crash? And that idea... And I'm kind of being serious when I'm saying this, and you've said this before. But that idea of the impossibility of technology meeting with humanity in this very direct way. And, and sometimes seen, that technology cinema itself. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Movies right. are very meta, yes. especially these early right. ones. Yeah. I mean, literally that scene you heard from Content, which I've said before, I love. I think it's great. It's one of your, that's, that's, that's definitely that your favorite. That's by far my favorite. Yeah, and uh, the, it literally has the camera point at the camera. And which like, you can't oh, hear, obviously, right. but that's what happens. But, uh, and then there's Pierre Lefou, which I saw in college. And I have a lot to say, and I've said that about that movie before, and we'll talk about it then. But you did like but, it a little better the second time. Yes, and I expect to like it even more the next. But that's a movie I think a lot about, though. It doesn't like it's gotten to the point where kind of like how I feel about Weekend too, because I really didn't like that when I first saw it. And we'll tell the the uh, Wallace Shawn story next week. <laughs> but uh, I'll keep you in suspense for that. Uh, but the. Uh, in the meantime, if you want to find out, just go watch him and Andre Gregory at the Criterion Closet and mm-hmm. be and be like, well, what the hell was any of that? <laughs> um, but uh, that both those movies, it's like, and having watched so many more of his movies, because that was one of my big COVID projects was to watch through a lot of his 60s yeah, stuff. Right. And uh, I did like quite a few other ones here and there I thought were better. And then there's ones I really still didn't like. Um, but and I, and I really like Breathless. But the uh, seeing those movies, you just don't get so mad about them anymore. It's kind of just like you you look at them, and go, mm, yeah, okay, whatever. But you just see the, and even when it was done from this like, and we talked about Godar when he died for a long time, but you see even at his most aggravating, it's all from this place of pure passion for something, yeah. even if it's in a negative or cynical, uh. Uh, view. Oh, it's uh, always this. He commits everything. I don't remember the like, quote. You know. Somebody said it a long time, and people paraphrased it. Uh, the 
the the line between love and hate is a very thin thing, especially if you hate something. I wouldn't say if you love something you hate it. Like, not right. that. But if you love if you hate something strong enough, then there is some there's some love or there's some disappointment in that love with that thing. And that was his relationship to cinema. Yeah. Because early on it started off of, you know, of course we all you know, I say we all anyone who's a cinephile, we all know the origin story of the French New Wave, that it was these here's the cinema. Yeah, you know, these French uh, critics, uh, him and Truffaut, obviously who Jacquet, yeah, Claude Chabrol, Eric Romero. Who like yeah. all were like they were complaining about what the cinema of quality was in France in like the mid to late fifties and thinking, Why don't we do something more Inspired and ironically, you go back and watch Renoir, and it's like this stuff's good. Oh, Renoir is amazing. (laughs) I mean, Renoir was an amazing director. So, yeah, you know, Uh, I've only seen like Tony, but you know, uh, I saw Grand Illusion a while back. I think I mentioned that in the last pod. That's as good as it. Everybody says it is. uh, Of course, uh, um, Rules of the Game. Rules of the Game. What's the other guy's name? Jean Jean Vigo. His movie. Oh yeah, he's great. I I don't know if he exactly qualified in some of those. Right, but but, yeah, yeah. but yeah, he's great. Um, Anyway, but they so they're like, well, why don't we make our own movies? And ironically, they looked to Hollywood partially for inspiration. They were obsessed with John Ford, especially Nicholas Ray, and like these directors who were doing things genre cinema. Because you see that with Bond Depart and uh, and even Alpha. And they're like, why don't we take Alpha? Why don't we take yeah? That's good. That's good. Uh, why don't we take some of those movies more seriously yeah. and like, and so Outsiders is of not Outsiders, uh, Breathless uh, yes. is his version of kind of a gangster movie, and I say that in and it shows Humphrey Bogart in it a lot. Yeah, yeah, and as Godard's cinema developed, and overall I like Truffaut's um, uh, cinema overall a little better, and certainly his perspective on things. But nonetheless, as Godard's especially aesthetic became more pronounced and more confident. He became more confrontational at the same time. Right. Now, that's not to say Breathless isn't confrontational in its own way, but like it became more and more yeah. outwardly political, outwardly meta, outwardly almost like the new Godard movie in the 60s was basically like, what's the latest thing he's got on his mind? I yeah. want to hear what that is and see how that's articulated. Um, and really, I think Americans need to understand that for the... American intellectual class, particularly the left in the 60s, Godard was like one of the North Stars, so much so that he was, in many ways, he was representative of Western nihilism in a visual art form. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when you watch these movies, they're not only like sophisticated or provocative, even when you don't like them. I mean, I kind of hated Weekend when I saw it. I want to see it again, but... uh, the first time I saw it, I was all, oh, screw you, screw this. But it's a movie that... Is that is a movie I think a lot about. Uh, I think too, a lot about, yeah. and is politically compelling, and certainly, as you said, and to the consternation of your student, influential. Um, and so, and obviously, we are huge fans of New Hollywood. New Hollywood was this attempt to do the French New Wave and these other New Waves all across the world uh, justice and trying to take some of the things that they did and apply them in an American context. But... With these two movies, you know, Contempt is very much kind of a movie about movies and a movie yeah. about filmmaking. And Pierre LeFou is in many ways just kind of this outward uh, dynamite of a political statement, both literally and figuratively. Yeah. Um, and these are movies very clearly made by uh, a brilliant, troubled genius, and I don't use that word loosely, mm-hmm. because even, and we talked about this after his passing, 
even in his movies you object to, you're compelled by, they're memorable, and they're saying things that even if you don't agree with, you're going to remember. Yeah, the only movie of his I was ever bored by was Masculine Feminine. I think that movie is such a slog. That is one that's kind of... And I know a lot of people are into that one, but uh, no, most of his other stuff, I was always entertained or at least was intrigued by whatever it had to say. Um, But yeah, and I think these represent a good... uh, summation of him at his best and not necessarily at his worst but at his most volatile i feel like weekend is even more i feel like weekend and puro lefou are pretty hand in hand about the volatility as far as i'm not sure i've seen puro lefou more so i remember more about that as far as what i remember about weekend it was very much that but it's been Mm -hmm. a long time since i've seen that um but the yeah with uh contempt just to kind of preview both these movies I think what works so much about that to me is the romanticism of the movie. Because as I mentioned, and we'll talk about it more next time after we've seen it again, one of the most compelling images of 60s cinema in general is the ending of that movie, and this is a spoiler about it already before we've been talking about it, of Jack Pounce and Bridget Bardot dead in that car crash. And the camera's just panning past it, and the music, the famous music from it, which was used in Casino, as we talked about when we talked about that movie, uh, is playing, and it's just like, even then, he can still at least look at this and say, yeah, this is a tragedy, and yes, this is this, and like, he he, he has this romantic, this romanticism very clear in that movie, you know. He very clearly got um, off uh, in destroying and mutilating beautiful things, yes, because that's right. also part of Pierre LeFou, yeah. uh, also, but yeah, I'm mm-hmm. sorry, go on. And yeah, you're right about that, but, but there is a, a sense of loss to that mm-hmm. movie, yeah. and... I'm not necessarily uh, it's a criticism. No, 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 it's just yeah. it's something he's right. interested in, obviously. Yeah, and so uh, and Jack Pounce in that movie. Wow. No, I mean, we obviously grew up with American Jack Pounce as uh, yeah. the one of the you know the side villain in right. Batman. Uh, he is so good in in Contempt though too. He is just like wow. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's just kind of funny seeing him pop up in this like very yeah. highly acclaimed French. Well, and he had been movie. in like the Big Knife before this, and Shane, and yeah. you know, and all these. Uh, movies in america most notably shane yeah yeah uh (laughs) but uh that uh yeah i mean and also fritz Fritz lang's in the movie that's what i was gonna mention too is the seeing as that Mm -hmm. so that movie is about cinema but um and it reminds me in certain ways of uh, Irma Vep, certain things about yeah, that. Yeah, that's similar. That could have been a... And that feature. was heavily inspired by Beware of a Holy Horror as well, which mm-hmm. we're not really fans of. And what I've seen of Fastbender, I've liked, but I'm... I'm you know, not, but, but I'm open yeah, to seeing more and right. respect them anyway. Uh, but anyway, in uh, <laughs> Merchant of Four Seasons, remember that movie? That was something else. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, and then there's Puro LeFou, which I think there's actually a lot more to say about as stylistically is just uh, on another level. Um, I mean, that was my first Godard. What was yours, Breathless? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think Pierre yeah. LeFou's almost the perfect first Godard, though, it honestly. Because it's just I, like, yeah. what is this? Yeah. like? And it's know? not to the extent of Weekend, which is expressly more political of a movie, is, is crazy, but a little more talkative. I think it like says a lot at you in a yeah. lot of ways, whereas like Pirola Food does that, and it just shows a lot of things too. And so, uh, and it that's a good uh, way to kind of think about editing in a lot of ways too. I think there's a lot in that that yeah. that is important for that. 
Um, but, and ultimately that movie's kind of about nothing, sort of. I mean, it's very much a lovers on the run, killing people movie, uh, yeah. about other things also in the middle of that. Um, looks amazing. I mean, well, Contempt really looks great in a more, like, conventional sense. And what I mean by that is that for 1963, that movie looks like, holy crap, you can make movies look this good. Mm-hmm. Like, you know... And then Puro LeFou looks great for a movie that is also very, like, experimental and, like, you know, still using color yes. in a very direct way and not willing to shoot in sunlight. I know that sounds weird, but for a movie like that, it kind of goes against what it's well, yeah, about right. in a lot it's of ways. It's part of that you know? uh, kind of aesthetic perversity. Right, and so, like, uh, that is very interesting in that way, but... We've been wanting to do Godard movies for a while, and we felt like these are two to... Because I feel like, too, these are two deep in the heart of his 60s-ness. Right. Uh, And so, uh, you know, there are movies also, frankly, I'm a little rusty on. Uh, I've only seen each of them once. I've seen Contempt Uh, once. So I'm very eager to revisit these and kind of uh, reappreciate what they're going for. Yeah. and have, what they have to say. I know I'd we might I might talk about it a little bit next week, but uh, a while back I had say, yeah, seen, seen uh, Lachina Weez, and I really thought a lot of the that. Red that book. was actually uh, yeah one of my favorite ones I've seen. I haven't him. seen that one, so yeah. I, it's a political document. Let me look at that film. other list. Just to, oh, what, you mean the, the rest of that. Yeah, uh, as far as his other movies, because there's some other ones I've seen. Well, Petite Soldat I thought was all right. Um, Band Apart, I didn't really like very much. Uh, a lot of short films. There's v- that Ziga Vertov group yeah. movies he made. Viva Seville, I liked. Um, Sympathy for the Devil, I saw that. Uh, that's kind of almost uh, partially Rolling Stones movie, but and it's, it's a lot like, about Vietnam yeah. too. I think in it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I wonder what that was like to make that movie. I've kind of heard stuff about that. I don't remember what it is, but just how weird it was for both parties to make. Because mm-hmm. they're like, he's kind of interested in doing that, and they're kind of like, well, we're just don't need to make and again, a movie. somebody who's but, obsessed with uh, and endlessly fascinated with like '60s counterculture yeah. in America, obviously, but also around the world. Godard represents this kind of, like I said earlier, this like North Star for a grand many people on a visual level. Um, and his movies always, when they came out yeah. during that time, were the cutting edge of whatever was being done. So. Yeah, and it's kind of like how one of my other favorite uh, you know, movies, and we'll probably do this movie eventually on here, is uh, Blow Up, how uh, mm-hmm. uh, the Yardbirds were in that. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of this intersection of like, you know, uh, Antonioni with like English culture, yeah, and that was his first English language film, but also just like, Tony you know, one of those great like, directors, obviously, yeah. the, this era, but. yeah. Well, Aventura is one of those movies that just sticks with you, and it's mm-hmm. just like, what was that? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I haven't uh, seen as much 60s Bergman. Uh, I'd like to see seen a couple, yeah. I've seen some, some of those, of those like Shame and some of those in the middle in the mid 60s that were really good. Uh, Persona was amazing. That obviously that was that. Yeah. Like I said about that before, that's probably the best movie. I have no clue what's going on in. <laughs> like, I don't even care because it's so right. good. But it's like yeah. But anyway, I, I digest. All right. So that does it for this episode of Overlapping. Our troubadours of conscience. This is Kyle. This is Levi. Take care. God bless. I know that, and I accept you don't see yourself as the voice of that generation. 
but some of your songs did stop people cold. You know, and they saw them as anthems, and they saw them as protest songs. It had that meaning for them. It was important in their lives. It sparked a movement. I mean, you may not have seen it that way, but that's the way it was for them. How, how do you reconcile those two things? Well, uh, my stuff were, were, were songs, you know, they, they weren't sermons. They came out of the folk music realm. Uh, I wrote a song about the death of Medgar Evers. And uh, the first line is a bullet from the back of the bush took Medgar Evers' blood. You know, a finger fired the trigger to his name. But I, the point I'm trying to make is that it's all in the alliteration of the lines. Uh, a bullet from the back of the bush took Medgar Evers' blood. It's true, it's written about somebody. And it's, it's true, it's written about a real thing. But uh, it's also done with a rhythm and, and uh, uh, a certain type of uh, uh, poetic nuance that uh, um, I don't know how I derived that. I, der I, I got all that into a particular song like that.